Welcome to episode 568 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right here, team. Welcome along to episode five, six, eight of I'm Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James. Oh, how are you going, mate? I'm bloody good, Bevan. Here you go. After a while, had the haircut. Looking sharp. Yep. Feeling smooth. Feeling smooth. Where did you get your haircut? I went to Manscaped this time. What do you think? They got the it's sculpt, down day. Yeah, sculpt massage, the shoulder massage, double hair wash. It was good. What do you pay? Forty-five. Oh, that's pretty good. Mm. I go around just around the corner, a place called Pure, literally hundred meters away from where you go. Thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. You don't get the shoulder rub. I, I've got no shoulder rub. No, I tell you that much. They do give me a pretty good scalp rub. Yeah, good. But, but no shoulder rub. How long do they give you shoulder rub for? <sighs> a minute. Okay. <laughs> That's it's well it. worth it. <laughs> I'm is Bradley brought to you by Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And let's name a few. John, you go first. John Mincer Muncy. We've got James Dirty Dog Spence. James the Red Rocket Thomas. Phil the Rich Uncle Scott. That's my rich uncle Phil. And Grant Skeletor Baxter. Okay, guys. So in this week's show, it's a little bit different. So John's basically in Hawaii. Yes, yesterday I rode the Ironman course. It might have been the day yeah, before. Oh, you're doing a whole course, are you? Oh, yeah. Day two. Day How two. many times have you ridden that in your life now? I reckon it must be getting up around 10, 12, something like that, I would imagine. Yeah. But enough to know that almost every time... The majority of people crumble because we normally do it on day one or day two of the camp. And look, the uh, the course in Hawaii it's it's a firm course in terms of the terrain. You know, it is quite up and down. It's certainly not flat. Smooth roads, man. Smooth roads, and you've got the climb up to Harvey. But whatever it is, you know, it's the wind and it's just everything else. It just no matter how fit you are, it just seems to be a real struggle every time. But this time, I've crushed it. I'm sure I've well. Oh, so you've struggled every time yourself as well. I, I've yet to have a really, really good ride on it, bits and pieces, but um, and I have had a few pretty big meltdowns. What's the big mistake people make? Just too hard? You're too hard in the first half, and and then not hydrating enough on the way down from Harvey, and getting to Harvey, usually you get to Harvey, you're thinking, sweet, this is pretty good, and that stretch from Harvey <laughs> back to the Queen K, whilst it's mostly downhill, a lot of the time, people all of a sudden they get down to the bottom, get to the Queen K, and all of a sudden the wheels just start falling off. And again, that's that sort of 130-ish k mark. You know, you're about two thirds of the way through. Pretty similar to an Ironman. So this time, though, I've crushed it. Oh, no doubt about it, John. Mm. No doubt about it. And I think today we're running from the Energy Lab into town. Nice. How far is that? Is it 21k? Uh, if you do, no. If you uh, we, we we drive out point to point, so it's about 14k's. We add in the little loop around town to get the full Ironman experience and finish at the sign by the pier, which says this is where the Ironman is. Oh, there you go. I didn't realize they had a sign there. There is. Oh. Can't really see it when everything else is going on during the week, but when you're there, when nobody is nobody's about, it's a nice sign. So basically, for the next how many episodes? Five episodes. Next week we've got a regular one, and after that we're oh, yeah. uh, pre-recording yeah. all of them. And we're doing them all today. So so we're we're, we're, we're we're on fire now, but yeah, five shows in time. Listen to there's just a depletion of the quality. Anyway, John. So this week we're, we're not we aren't doing latest news and all the rest of it. We just got a couple interviews on, and the first one is with who, John? We've got Debbie Hazeldean. So you guys will have heard from her way back in January. 
that her and her partner John Mergler, they were going to embark on John doing 100 Ironmans in 100 days, which is nutbar. And then Debbie was going to be doing half of that. She's had a baby fairly recently, so she was going to do 100 half Halfs, Ironmans yeah. in 100 days, finishing with uh, Ironman Australia, which was a few weeks ago. So Debbie got through it, and you're going to hear about that. Before we do, let's do a sponsor. So sponsors, Extreme Endurance Jombo. Extreme Endurance. Now, we're as I said, we're in Kona, and Extreme Endurance is a vital component of my week. I've, the Dr. Feelgood, Dave Dwan, he, he, he goes over a couple of days early, and he's actually arrived today when we're pre-recording, because I've already seen the, the higher vehicle emails have started coming through. <laughs> so one of his instructions is going to be, make sure the Extreme Endurance is there, otherwise I'm taking my own stock. It is a huge part for me getting through this camp uh, is making sure on the extreme endurance, meaning I'm back up day after day and reduce that muscular soreness. Uh, and for the athletes that come along, uh, they get a sample pack and most of them then are converted and uh, and find that they get through the week a lot better and reduce that muscle soreness. And for me, that's going to be critical in terms of backing up from this week, backing up from the race with Rote not too far over the uh, horizon. I need to get back into the training pretty quickly. So uh, immune, uh, use the immune boost over there. We're using the extreme endurance. And let's be honest, up. a lot of people have big training blocks leading into it. You know, mm. you'll do like a big weekend or, you know, maybe a five-day training block. So to kind of incorporate something like this would be a good move. Absolutely. Reduce your muscle soreness, get a lift in performance. Check it out, xendurance.com. And remember the promo code IMTALK20 for 20% off. Okay, here is Debbie Hazeldean. Okay, guys, you've been hearing us give the odd update um, through the months. I think last time we had Debbie Hazeldine on was, uh, I think it was, might have been back in January or so when they embarked on doing their 100 Ironmans in 100 days. Um, John Mergler was going to attempt the Ironman distance, and Debbie was going to be doing the 70.3 half Ironman distance for 100 days, uh, finishing off with an Ironman, and she bloody well completed it. So, welcome back to the show, Debbie. <laughs> Thank you. How did your body handle the challenge? Because I think a lot of people just wonder how the hell it affects you after such a long day, so or such a long time. So how did how did it all go, and, and did it sort of go to plan? Um, well, I have to say it was probably a lot harder than what I imagined it to be, and it wasn't just um, oh, it was just so much harder. And even I think the mental side of things was a lot harder than the physical. I was very lucky that I didn't get very injured throughout the um, throughout the hundred days. At at day fifty, I had a little injury. Um, I had a new pair of shoes and I had the laces tied too tight. Yeah. So I don't know if you've heard of that sort of injury. You just um, get inflammation on the top of the foot. Mm-hmm. It's quite a good injury to have because if you do get um, if you can get rid of the inflammation, the injury is kind of totally gone. But Running 21k and cycling and that every day was pretty hard to get rid of the injury. Um, I went and had acupuncture a couple of times and and luckily I managed to get rid of that. I did it. It was so painful for a while there. I was pretty much crying every day from day 50 to to 56 sort of thing. It was just so much pain to run and uh, and I was kind of sort of thinking, well, if it's this painful, I better stop it. You know, I'll stop at day 60. Uh, but by day 60, I managed to disappear, and on I had to go, <laughs> keep going to day 100, and no other injuries after that. 
So what about the rest of the body? You know, we hear a lot about people's feet going crazy in terms of really swelling up and needing to cut their shoes out. And, and then there's obviously the blisters and the knees and what have you. So the rest yeah. of your body, like, did you, did you just sort of adapt or, or what happened, you know, other than that, that injury? So the first few weeks, I don't know if um, you guys remember, it was really hot. We had, mm. February was so hot. We had quite a few 42-degree days. and That's just unheard of for Sydney. Um, we had about a week of 36 degrees, which is nuts. So just pouring a lot of ice um, water on my head every kind of lap around the park. And that tended to not be such a good idea because it would get down into my shoes and it did cause a few blisters. Um, I learned about that afterwards, so it was just kind of if I was going to continue that, I'd have to lean over and pour the water on your head and, you know, change your socks every, um, like maybe every 20k on the run or something like that. But I was lucky that the heat kind of disappeared. And I did get a whole lot of other blisters because I managed to get hand, foot and mouth off my um, six-month-old. Oh, so this is probably in week two. I actually thought it was heat rash. Um so I didn't do anything about it. I just kept going. It was so painful, especially on your feet. Um, and then probably at week three, my massage lady was like, oh, I think you've got hand, foot, mouth. But by that stage, it was kind of disappearing anyway. So that was good. All those blisters disappeared. And then I managed to get another virus off um, Lil Rider because he went to he just started going to daycare. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so blisters weren't too much of an issue. Um Knees, I did have a little bit of an issue with knees, uh, especially on cold days because, you, you know, just need to warm up. I just found I just needed to warm up easily, like keep going easy on the bike. And then it was on the run where the knees kind of started to get a little bit sore. Um, I managed to get through it and it was no bad injury. It was just, you know, just a little bit of knee pain. So nothing like ITB or anything like that. It's I think it was pretty lucky. I think it was the consistency of pace as well, mm. just not going too hard, not um, wearing the muscles out too much, so I didn't have to recover much at home. I mean, my heart rate average on the on the bike every day was probably about 110, and then on the run was 120, 125 average. Mm. So I wasn't wasn't taxing the body too much, so I didn't have wouldn't take too much time to recover. I did do one week of where I was running. I don't know, I felt pretty excited, I think, Dave. When was it? I think it was about in the 40s, um, like 40 to 45. I was getting pretty excited about getting to day 50. And <laughs> picked up the run of it. I did a few, like, 148s, 149, a whole week of sort of sub-150. And then I thought, oh, hold on a minute. My muscles are, you know, just getting a little bit more tired. Um so I, I, and that's when I ended up getting the foot injury with the tight shoelace as well. So I, I, after day 50, I kind of slowed down on the run. So about, you know, just making sure it was sub two, two hours every, every day. Um, so no records after that. <laughs> so, so run us, run us through your day, you know, in terms of how it actually works. You know, you've obviously got your young child and stuff and, and you doing the, the halves. Um, obviously it's not all day, but it's a bloody big chunk of the day. So, so run us through how you sort of managed each day. Yeah, so usually we were at the pool by 6 o'clock. So that meant I had to get a babysitter around, um, probably 5.30. We had a few, quite a few friends helping out. My parents came over from New Zealand, which was really good. Um, yeah, so 6 o'clock pool, and you'd be surprised at how much time it takes up, like, you mm -hmm. know, swim and then you've got to drive to the park and so we were probably 
started biking about eight o'clock. Um, and then it was like clockwork every day. So we'd bike at eight until, you know, it'd take three hours and then I'd run at say 11.30 for two hours. And so it just went basically more off time. Mm-hmm. And the bike and the run were both done in Centennial Park. So we'd just drive the camper van there, leave it there, and loads of people would come along and ask how it's going and ride and run with me, which is just oh, so much of a help because, you know, when you're out there by yourself, you just start going crazy and you, and you wonder what you're doing, why are you doing this, you know. And um, your mind starts to wander, but, you know, feeling a bit depressed, feeling miserable, especially on wet days. But when people would pop along, which was really often, um, and they're like, oh, hi, how's it going? And it would just be like a spell and you'd be kind of thinking, what was I even thinking about? Why was I so miserable? So it really pick up your spirits and oh, it was just so helpful. So were there, were there many key moments? You, know, you talked about the, the sort of injury around day 50 and then sort of picking your pace up around day 40 for a week or so. Was there any moments where you, you kind of got over a bit of a hump in terms of just getting into a routine or, or having moments where you thought, shit, I'm not going to make this or yes, I am going to make this? Was there any really critical moments? Yeah, I think, um, well, the first 50 was pretty good. And when I got to 50, I know everyone else is kind of thinking, oh, you've got to 50, doing 100 would be easy. Mm. The second 50 was so much harder than the first. Mm. I think it's because, you know, doing something like that that you don't actually have to be doing um, for that amount of time away from your family, just out there, oh, it's, it's hard work. So that second 50 was so hard, and especially with John, going through um, what he was going through with his injuries and the days that he wasn't out there it was it was just hard I mean we had it was pretty intense at our house and uh, Mm. going Mm. out there knowing that you've got no John injured and um, just everything else going on it's hard to to focus on what you're doing and those sort of days where I've got all this other stuff I mean life goes on bills need to be paid work needs to be done so going and doing a half marathon half Ironman sorry when when you know you've got other stuff to do it's really hard to focus and on those days I found the run really hard to do and you'd be like oh you know I should be at home doing this looking after you know looking after John or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a few days where I was kind of just oh I I remember one day where I was just started the run I was kind of like oh I just cannot do this I'm just gonna I'm just gonna walk the whole thing this is awful I hadn't walked any of them and um just luckily, I thought, I'll run one lap. I'll just run it really easy. So I ran at like six-minute pace around the park. And then up popped my friend, which was, oh, it was just a godsend. And um, he's like, oh, let's just oh, – because I said I was so shitty. I was like, I'm just going to walk the rest of them. If you want to do it, you can do it with me. Um, he's like, just do one lap. You know, we'll just run one lap. And he ran one with me, which is, you know, 3.6K. And then he's like, let's do another one. And, you know, he kept doing that every lap until we'd done the – the six laps and and got it done so there were quite a few days where you know it's just lap by lap breaking it out breaking it down and 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 managed to get through it but there were lots of days where I was just didn't want to be there Mm. um now did you stick to the 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 plan of did you pretty much do all of them at Centennial Park so in the one location same route same 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 every day or did you other than obviously on the last day did you did you change it up at all yeah, so we found that Centennial Park is just absolutely nuts on the weekend, and it was okay if you're doing a, a you know, 90k bike, but trying to do well, it's, it's still pretty hectic. 
Um, but for John trying to do 180 in the park, he was, you know, he got hit on on his bike quite a few times. It's just mm. people don't look. The cars just turn into the bike lane and, and kids just, it's just crazy. you just got to be so aware. So we decided to go down to um, San Susie. I don't know if you know where that is. It's just a little beach um, just out of Sydney, south of Sydney. You can just um, ride and run down there, which is quite nice, down at Cornell. Um, so we did a few weekends down there, which was nice. But unluckily, that's where John um, tripped over on a cobblestone out at San Susie. It's got a really nice path, but it's quite a bit of uneven cobblestone. So one night doing a marathon in his Ironman, he was um, he was going really well, and you know, 5:20 pace for his Ironman, and then just tripped on a cobblestone and landed on his hand and tore two tendons in his shoulder. Mm. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, he's going to. Uh, shoulder surgery tomorrow to get that fixed and it'll be like a six month recovery so that um, was obviously your challenge was going to be massive um in terms of doing the you know 100 half ironmans and, and john's was just um off the charts in terms of trying to do 100 ironmans so uh, up to that point where he did have that fall how was he going and, and what sort of day was this uh so he had done that was he'd done ten in a row. So at first he did seven in a row, but that was during um I think the weather really you know really got to him. Mm. Uh, it was those were the days which were pretty much two weeks of forty two degrees and thirty six mm. degrees. It's crazy. I think um you know his muscle his I think his VMO went into spasm. I'd have to get him to I can't mm. I know exactly what happened. Um, but I'd say it was to do with the heat. So that um stuffed up that and he had a little break and he tried to do another seven but the same injury was there mm. uh he had another little break and then came back with um 10 iron man and then it was just we talked about it and it was you know it was a really big discussion for us but mm. whether it carried on it was i think if we thought about it again we were probably one of us should have been supporting and one of us should have been doing it mm. Mm. It's just too hard. We don't have the support for you. I mean, when, um, what's his name, Iron Cowboy tried to do it, he had about six people, you know, full-time support crew, which is which is kind of what you need. We didn't have anyone, so when he was out there, I mean, we had support crew, but they're all working full-time and then they're at home in their beds. I mean, yeah. they're not out there supporting us. Um, so that was hard. He, he would like to give it a go again and, you know, have a, like, me, me there supporting him the whole time or a proper support crew, maybe go over and do those uh, Deca races and have it in a race format. I think, yeah, the way we did it it just just wasn't possible. So anyway, he ended up doing 10 10 more Ironman and then joined in with me and did 27 halves and then he had the the fall. Yeah. So do you think it's possible? Like, uh, is that something that you would ever conceive doing, doing the 100 fulls, given you've done these 100 halves and know how tough it was? Do you think for you it would be possible or something you would want to consider doing? Personally, no, I wouldn't want to (laughs) give that a go. Um, But if we did go over and do that, uh, those Decca, whatever they're called, Decca Man, which is a 20 or 30 Ironmans in a row, I'd probably give those a go, but... um, I reckon 20 would be all I would want to give a go. It's bloody tough. I mean, it's your whole day, whole night, your whole life. Yeah. Not enough sleep. It's it's so tough. Even just um, when John had done seven or something, it's, it's oh, 
it's it's crazy. It's impossible. I don't know. Like if anyone could do it, John could do it. But he needs to, you know, be in the right environment, not have those crazy heat. Um, yeah. The, the heat and and have a proper support group. Mm. And um, what's you sort of talked a little bit about your speeds. You're going there, sort of hovering maybe around a little bit under two hours and stuff for the for the run. Did you did you slow down much in the second half? You said it was a lot harder. And other than that little period where you sped up, did your paces stay sort of consistentish um, once you sort of settled in in that second half? Yeah, so my swim increased, which was good because I didn't actually wow. do much swimming beforehand. So um, yeah, so that increased to about probably. Oh, I don't know, like on average 32, 33 minutes um, per 1900. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was good. Uh, not even pushing it, just, you know, just going along. Just swimming. Yeah, just swimming. Um, but I did a PB in the Ironman, so that was good on the last day. Because usually, <laughs> well, usually I don't swim too much. So you, um, normal Ironman swim is probably like 109, so I did 102. Wow. Yeah, so that was that was nice. Um and yeah, obviously still pretty fatigued. Uh, the run, oh, the bike, sorry. Yeah, so the first half was probably more about three hours. And I think it was also motivation. I did slow down quite a bit the second, the second one. So they were like ranging from three to three, sort of three ten. Sometimes even um, when I got to the days up at Port Macquarie, which are probably like three twenty, even because it's you know going around roundabouts and mm. quite a lot of traffic stops and. So we went to Port Macquarie on day 95, and uh, it was actually pretty tough. I mean, went up there, and we travelled up there at the night time, and then I thought, oh, yeah, I'll go do the course. The course is pretty tough up there. It's a, it's not like Centennial Park. It's a big, big chip road, um, so it's a lot slower. It's kind of like dead road, and there's trucks and just so much traffic. It, it just was, oh, I wasn't having a good time, and there's so many hills. I pretty much had a bit of a breakdown and um, pulled over on the side of the road. I rang John. I was like, I'm coming home. <laughs> so he's like, okay, come home. And I rode home and I was, you know, I was really wanting to. I was like, what the fuck are we doing? Sorry, I shouldn't swear. What are we doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this? And then um, uh, anyway, he told me to go out and finish the ride. So I did this little 10K loop outside our holiday apartment and um Came home and then, yeah, the run was fine. I did like, a, I don't know, 202 or something that day. Um, and the next day, yeah, I did loops around again, around the 10K loop around the apartment. And I just, I don't know, I just couldn't go out there. And then I was really worried about race day. I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't even climb up that hill. You know, what is it, Matthew Flinders? Because oh, I had to actually get off my bike on one hill. I think I wasn't ready for it. I don't know. My mind was pretty stuffed. And then I was thinking, race day is going to be awful. But um, after everyone started coming into town and I'd kind of rode with everyone and run with everyone, um, what's his name, Chris, big sexy, came and ran with us one day. It was oh, just, yeah. you know, Andrew Charles. And it was just really nice. And then race day was was, was fun. So it was good. I know it was tough. Um, well, just kind of cruising along, just didn't have anything extra in the tank, and the times ended up exactly the same as um, what I was doing every day. So, like, 102, 609, and then a 355, which which is not super speedy, but, um, yeah, just just going along, doing the same thing every day. And how did your um, 
how did your immune system and everything handle it? You, you talked about a couple of viruses there that was, you know, probably from your your young son. Um, but but how's your body sort of? I mean, I know it's only been a, a fairly short period since the since the race, but how does your body sort of cope with it? And, and how has it been post doing the Ironman, um, sort of coming down from it? Um, I think because I was not pushing my body too hard every day because, you know, as I said, the heart rate was only 110 and, and you know, below 130. Uh, it wasn't too hard. Um, but coming down off it now, it's more, I think, you know, a little bit of depression. I don't know. It's just like, mm. you know, um, more so than body. Like my body's fine. I'm fatigued. I went out for a couple of runs. Uh, I just felt like walking. I was like, I don't know how I came out and did a half Ironman every day. That's what I feel like now. Kind of be bothered walking to the shops. Um, no, I think, you know, you feel a little bit depressed, but um, I've been managing. I've been trying to go out and do a little bit every day, so even just a 5K run, and we're back into coaching our group here, which is great. So we go out and did, I did 15K with the guys the other day, which is, um, that was a little bit faster, so we did like 5.20 pace. It was nice to pick it up and hopefully in a week or so I'll be feeling fresh and hopefully and um, <laughs> thinking about racing cans actually. Oh wow, oh, that was going to be my next question, you know, what's, <laughs> what's going to be next? Do you, do you um, obviously, you, you know, you're a top level age grouper so, you know, qualifying for Kona and stuff like that, you've still got to have a good race um, but is, yeah. you know, what what is your sort of uh, plan now that you've got this base fitness? You, I guess you've probably got to try to refine a little bit of speed but um, what, what are your plans for the rest of the year? Yeah, well, I feel like I've got all this base fitness and I really should should be using it. So um, it's we're in decision-making at the moment whether we go up to Cairns and race that and try and qualify for Kona, which is the, the downside is if I qualify, I mean, John can't qualify, obviously, with his um, seniors he's out with the shoulder, so it mean us all going to Kona and, and him not racing. So just got to decide on that. But I love Cairns as a race. I've done it three times before and, and I've qualified there before. So, um, so yeah, either that, but I'd also like to try and do a fast marathon because I've actually never run a marathon um, outside of outside of Ironman for myself. So I've run it with um, athletes and stuff, but... Mm, and cool. also I want to get into ultra running so I want to do planning a 100k um, run and yeah quite a few other things and we've, we've also um, I don't know there's lots in the pipeline and we'll also some more crazy things coming um, and yeah we coach a lot of athletes um, online coaching and things like that so yeah just trying to build that up Great. So you're still um, fundraising for Red Cross. I see you're up to about $40,000 um, and I see you made it onto the TV channels and all that sort of stuff. So are you pleased with how that's um, panned out and is that, how, how long is that going to go for in terms of keeping your fundraising open? Yeah, we did have a goal of obviously $100,000, which we thought was pretty doable, but I guess with John um, not being able to complete, it was kind of... I don't know. We got 40,000 and Red Cross are totally impressed. They're just so happy. We had a meeting with them yesterday and they just said we're one of their top top fundraisers. So that's awesome and we'd love to keep raising money for them and whether it's future events or um, future things. So we're going to leave this open and try and get to 50,000, which would be awesome. And so we're just giving it one last push mm. to try and raise some um, 
10 more thousand dollars for the disaster relief. At the moment, it's going up to the Cyclone Debbie Disaster Relief Fund, which was up in Queensland yeah. Northern, and Northern New South Wales. Um, and, yeah, well, that, that will be closing soon, probably a month, and then, but we'll possibly be raising funds for Red Cross in the future as well. Fantastic. So um, if people want to follow what you guys are doing, um, what's the best way for them to do that? So they can follow us on Facebook. On, I think you just type in Iron Century, but we also have the website ironcentury.com.au. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're on Instagram as well. Fantastic. Oh, no, it was a bloody impressive achievement, and uh, and we know how tough it must have been, especially when John wasn't able to carry on and, and the stress that was involved in that. So, uh, well done on doing it. Now, I've seen it's sort of a, a record. Is there a record as such as who's done the most half Ironmans, male or female? Um, and do you now hold that record? And is it any sort of is it official in any way? It's not so much, it's not a Guinness record and um, because they just, <laughs> it's a money thing. Mm. They just don't try and get you money. Uh, yeah, so the previous guy didn't go through Guinness either, so he just had a world record. Um, so we've just, and it was a guy's one, so the guy had 30. So now it's at 100 and, or maybe 99, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's not totally official written up anywhere, but. Yeah, but you were you were recording your Garmin files and um, and Quark files and all that every day. Yeah. So yeah. so I That's guess all... uh, if people want to verify that you actually did it, there is uh, some record of that. Absolutely. So so it's known as a world record, but it's not officially a Guinness World Record. Fantastic. Oh, as I said, awesome achievement, and uh, even better that it's done by a Kiwi uh, living in Australia, which is fantastic. And um, well done on that, and good luck for whatever the rest of the year brings. Cool. Thank you, John. John, you did the interview. Just any thoughts post? Uh, well, just a couple of things. So you can check out their Facebook page. Uh, if you search for uh, Iron Century, uh, the official page is facebook.com slash 100ironman100days, and you'll be f- able to find them. But if you look for Iron Century or plug in their names, you will get there. They are still fundraising, as Debbie said, uh, trying to get as much money for Red Cross to help out with the cyclones that hit up in Queens- Queensland not too long ago. Um Look, this sort of stuff, it's its bloody impressive, but it's not my cup of tea in terms of just going day after day, which is a little bit hypocritical because that's kind of what we do Epic on Camp. Epic Camp. Mm. But uh, that's for 12 days and you haven't got that massive running component. And we, we do lots of these interviews and so often the... The back half of these things just don't sound like that much fun, you know. They just sound <laughs> to me, like to me the only concern is the long-term damage. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, our Forest Gump guy. What's the guy Forest Gump who's running across America? Jim Plunkett, I think. Yeah, it is. yeah. like for, like I love what you're doing, Jim. But Jeepers, I do wonder about your body in the long term for the cost of something like this. Now, sure, people are pretty conditioned, but I don't know if human bodies were designed to do this. Yeah, so I think the half Ironman for Debbie that was still incredibly hard. But 21 k's a day running, that's where you're going to do, do you know, most likely do the damage. You factor that in, that's actually not m- much more than what a typical runner's doing. Now, they're not doing the biking in the swimming. Biking, biking the swimming. But there's so, no rest day either. There's no rest day. So Awesome, like respect. Yeah. But I just hope your bodies aren't going to pay the price 10 years from now. Yeah. yeah. So we'll look forward to see how Debbie goes. She was 
talking about Ironman Cairns, as you guys mentioned, seeing if she can, if this hasn't slowed her down, you know, she's going to be insanely fit and insanely strong, but whether or not this has knocked any speed off her or not, but uh, she's a bloody strong athlete, tough chick, uh, so uh, good luck to her and Cairns. <laughs> Pretty awesome stuff. Okay, Jumbo, let's talk about a sponsor. We're going to talk about good old Ethlinks.com. We had Ironman Brazil last weekend, so well done to everybody over in Ironman Brazil. And my predictions for the race, we had, so we had Andreas Raylert Racing, Brent McMahon Racing, Tim Don Racing, uh, Nico Lanos, Paul Matthews. I am going to pick, who are you going to pick out of that lot there, Bevan? I'm going to rail it just because I love the guy. Yeah, right. I, 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 to be honest, not sure if you would have won it, but I'm picking him because I picked him for years to win country and he never did. You'd have to say Brent McMahon is the raging hot favourite, but I'm going to go for a dark horse and say a Nico Lanos, at least on the podium. Nico Lanos? Yeah. Oh, I, I thought I was going out there. Yeah. Lanos hasn't done a lot in a while, has he? Well, he has not, but... Uh, this last weekend he did. Last, yeah, last weekend, weekend he did. He did really got a podium. So there you go. So Ethlinks.com? Ethlinks.com. And the, the other reason, we slightly got off track there. But, <laughs> you forgot um, what you were doing. No, so I went on to Ethlinks and thought, I was Ironman Brazil weekend. I'll, I'll have a look on Ethlinks.com and see who was the top finisher, etc. But um, ended up stumbling all the way back to 2001. And that's the great thing about Athlinks. It's so easy to get all the results, um, past results, just all in one place rather than trawling through page after page of uh, different Ironman links, what have you. And man, back in 2001, this must have been the time when there weren't anywhere near as many Ironmans because there was some classic names. Eduardo Stuller won it. Farisal Sultan at the age of 23 back then uh, got second place. Ken Glar was third. Now you won't have heard of a guy, Alec Rukasev. Uh, he was probably, he was always the guy who kind of led out the swim in Kona for a long time. Oh, really? He was ex-top swimmer. He swam 45 minutes down there. Peter Busick was still around back that wow. time. Peter Kropko. Now Peter Kropko was a guy who had this legendary run and he did so here as well. He ran a 2.4 and ran himself up into sixth place. Um, other names on here is Alexandra Ribeiro. I'm pretty sure that's a dude that's gone on and won Ultraman a few times, as is Jonas Colton, who finished one place behind him in 10th. Is he still racing? Jonas Colton? Yeah. No, he's just uh, focusing on his... We're still doing bits and pieces, but he's coaching. mainly doing his coaching in the... Um, the swim run thing yep. jigs. and then other names on here that was really interesting for me and this for you people who have only been in sport a few years you won't know some of these names Oscar Galindez he was there in 12th and one that was even further back in the history books uh, Leandro Macedo he was around in the one of the top guys on the ITU sort of mid to late 90s uh, fantastic runner uh, so he was in there and then the other Brazilian that was around at the same time I think he was a former world junior champion um, Alexander Manzan was in 16th place and listen to the show who now does the uh, the Grand Fondos etc Uli Flume managed to nip under the 9 hour barrier with 8 oh. hours 59.22 so, yeah, back in the day when there weren't that many Ironmans, they got some lots of classic names to these races. So I guess my point is athlinks.com keeps everything in one place. You don't have to go surfing around other websites. And well done to everybody who raced in Brazil at the weekend. So we're going to put an interview on. If you've listened to Legends in the past, you would have listened to this interview. But it's an interview that we get a lot of feedback on. Uh, and it's, to me, I love, like Peter Reid, I, I love this interview. And so Peter Reid is... Obviously, if you haven't heard about Peter Reid, you need to do a bit of history on this sport. But Peter Reid won Kona three times and never won back to back. No. No. Well, we talked about back to back on last week's show, and it was mm -hmm. Tim DeBoom, Crowey, 
Frodo, Mark Allen, Mark Allen, Dave Scott. Mm-hmm. So he so he kind of never got that back to back, but still got three wins. So he's a bit of a legend. And uh, but but what I love about this, there's just so much deep insight in this interview. So we thought, you know, because we are kind of preloading some shows, we thought we'll get this one with Peter Reed back on, so you guys can have a listen to it. And also, uh, a number of people have told us they've gone back and listened to this ep- uh, this interview a number of times. Yeah. And a lot of you guys will have heard it. But uh, it was quite a long time ago that we recorded it, so hopefully you enjoy round two. Here we go, here is Peter Reed. Righty-ho, uh, on this month's show we have a man that not only did he win uh, Hawaii three times, he was on the, the podium another four or five times, so four times, and uh, along with winning plenty of other races around the world, currently still holds, the, by my records, the fastest marathon time in an Ironman of all time. Uh, and just legend, John. Legend. Well, this show is called legend. Legends of the Triathlon, and it's it's appropriate, really, isn't it, when you've got like this on? So, welcome along to the show, Peter Reid. Oh, thanks, guys. Hey, um, what's happening these days? We know. We know uh, the last I heard, you're a um, a celebrity pilot. Uh, somebody sent an email through saying you're on the flipping Canadian Bachelor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, well, I, I was actually the uh, the pilot that flew the uh, the. Canadian bachelor on a date mm-hmm. so yeah I was uh, so I was the pilot who, who flew you know the one of the uh, the big date episodes where they went to this little resort community so I was um, I fly float planes so they were they went to this little resort community that I flew them out for a date so yeah did, did, did they acknowledge who you were or, or you oh were no just, they had no idea you're just a pilot in the yeah, world just the pilot <laughs> every once in a while someone will recognize me and They'll kind of double take, and then they'll they'll be like, "Are you Peter Reed?" <laughs> like, yes, I am. And they're like, "Whoa, wow, you're flying planes!" <laughs> so you don't still have the bleached hair that you had at one stage? No, no, that faded out pretty quick. <laughs> nice. Well, it's the the white's coming back, but it's not bleached. <laughs> not by choice. Oh, I've got <laughs> that problem too. Um, we we always like to start with. Um, you know, pre-triathlon and, and sort of what went on in your life before triathlon. So people people love to know, you know, was, was your family really into sport and, and, and sort of what drove you into competitive sport? Well, actually, um, my parents were into alpine skiing. And so I kind of, uh, to get rid of me on the weekend so they could go and ski, they enrolled me in uh, like ski racing. So, you know, Saturday and Sundays, all I'd be doing is, uh, you know, running gates and racing on the weekends. And uh, when I was uh, closer to about 14, um, I wanted to take it up another notch to see how, you know, if I could, if I can make that other level as, as being a national, you know, alpine skier. Mm. And back then, the uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Crazy Canucks. They were like the the awesome Canadian skiers on the on the world circuit from mm. Canada. Um, most of the Crazy Canucks were into bike racing, and they got really? their summer. Yeah, like nowadays, it's all power. You know, all the guys spend a lot of time in the gyms. But back then, it was about aerobic fitness for the downhill. And these guys were really into cycling, and so I I figured that's what I should do. So I bought a race bike and. Uh, joined a local um, junior group and I actually had an amazing junior coach and actually a lot of us out of that program went on to pro careers. I was the only one who became a triathlete but the other guys had, uh, a couple of them had some really good, um, one of them actually raced in the tour. Mm. Um, So 
And my first summer of bike racing, I did better than I ever did as an alpine skier. So that's really? kind of how I, yeah, that's kind of how I got discovered uh, aerobic sports. And, and was is, so once you had that first summer, was it an obvious choice, or did you still have the dream of doing the alpine skiing? Um, I it kind of the alpine skiing uh, when I was about fifteen, like the following year, it totally faded out. I knew I wasn't going to make it, and uh, I just got. You know, rather than skiing on the weekends, I was uh, I was on the rollers. You know, during the winter time, <laughs> get ready for for uh, cycling season. And, and so, what when? And yeah, obviously you're, you're getting stuck into the cycling. When did triathlon come onto the scene for you? Uh, it, it was actually a lot later. Um, uh, my cycling was doing well. I was you know like state champion or like we call them provincial champion, and uh, I was long listed for the the um the national team and but my grades were getting worse and worse and worse and uh yeah unfortunately and my parents put a lot of pressure for me to get out of cycling and focus on my studies and uh i dropped out of cycling and i think I, I part of me thinks looking back that i kind of chickened out i was afraid of of committing to it yeah and um so i did my studies and uh, it was actually in university that i discovered triathlon and um and it was just a, a buddy of mine registered for a local triathlon and persuaded me to do it with him and uh so we, we kind of got in the pool and tried to learn how to swim and and uh that's kind of how it snowballed and what really got me hooked was uh, i was single at the time and i could not believe how many gorgeous <laughs> And how easy it was to chat with, you know, complete strangers after a race. You know, it's a win-win. Yeah, it's a total win-win. So I, I was hooked. Hey, but can, I, can I take you back a little bit? What was it like being a cycling teenager? Because we talk a lot to people who were brought up as swim kids, and, and we know the sacrifice for those guys are. And, and, I, and I look at kids who are teenagers who are big-time cyclists, and, you know, cycling is such a big-time commitment. Mm-hmm. Did, did, like, what was it like at that stage of your life to be in a sport that did take up so much time? Well, we had a really good program, and I was living in uh, Ottawa at the time, our nationals capital. And uh, you know, during the summer and the spring and the fall, we had a group that met uh, basically thirty minutes after school was out. Uh, we met on a corner, and the coach would cruise up, and there were uh, was a strong junior program. I think we were up fifteen juniors at the time, so it was quite social. Oh, yet, okay. you know, a structured program so it was it was pretty easy to head out the door and meet your buddies and go out there and ride and we had a we had an awesome coach he was he was strict yet uh really knowledgeable and it was yeah it was super addictive it was a little bit weird at work where i mean at, at school where you know all of a sudden i started to shave my legs and you know a lot of people weren't too sure what was going on but uh it was uh it was it was actually really easy to do and we had quiet roads, and we could. Um, it was it was a perfect place to get into cycling. Mm. So, so you, you mentioned you, you got into triathlon at university. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe tell us a bit about your first experiences of triathlon, and I'm also interested what what year that was. It was 1989, and my very first triathlon was the one I did with my buddy, and it was part of the uh, Canadian National Triathlon Series. It was a big um series at the time you know some pretty big canadian names were there and uh you know i came from cycling so i was like oh elite 
you know, that's what I'm going to enter. <laughs> Did you? I, know I, I had no idea about age groups. I didn't, I didn't know what that was. You know, I, when I ski raced, I always raced elite. And when I bike raced, it was elite or elite junior. And so I hit that elite and, uh, there I was with Canada's best triathletes racked next to me. And I still remember thinking, I'm like, how am I going to find my bike after the swim? Well, I wasn't really a strong swimmer. Actually, I wasn't much of a swimmer. It was a 400 meter swim. And about uh, 100 meters in, I had to go to the breaststroke because I was out of breath and could no longer do the front crawl. Wow. And I pretty much, uh, by the time I hit the beach, there was only one bike left in transition. <laughs> my bike. And I actually managed to tr- pass a bunch of guys on the bike. And then um, everybody that I passed on the bike passed me back on the run. And <laughs> I still remember, like, the back then you got the results. You know, it was a printed sheet. And the results were four pages long, and I was on the last page. <laughs> nice. But I was hooked. I was like, this is cool. This is really, you know, it was really social. It was, uh, um, there was no, one of the things that, that drew me away from cycling was the team tactics. And, you know, and, and this was totally yourself. You just, you know, if you had a bad day, it was your fault. And if you had a good day, it's because you dug deep and made it happen. How long did it take before it became an obsession? You know, like, you know, you obviously, to get to the level you've got to, you obviously had to work, you know, bloody hard at the sport. You know, at first you try, it's quite social, quite fun. Mm-hmm. What was that transition kind of towards becoming more serious with it? Uh, I guess it was, this is so about three years later, I graduated from university and I wasn't too, I had a you know, degree in political science, which, you know, didn't really lead to a job and I wasn't too sure where I was going to go from there and... Um, the results were starting to come around like I was kind of, you know, maybe in the top 20 in the country at that time. So, you know, it wasn't really sponsored or any, you know, anything like that was, I'd never made any prize money or anything like that. But, uh, basically I decided to just, you know, I had, I got a job at a local running store and I just decided to see, you know, I gave myself a year. I was like, all right, I'm going to work part-time at this running store and commit to triathlon and kind of see how far it goes i was kind of you know what else am i going to do i've got nothing nothing to lose you know just see what happens and uh uh i can't say at the end of the year that i actually improved dramatically but there were i could start seeing signs that i was like i think i think i can do something with this because the first results i saw of you were um 1992 on triathlon.org website the itu website and i think you were finishing sort of yeah, something like fifteenth or something in some fairly yeah. fairly high level Canadian race. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly where I was. And then in uh, nineteen ninety three, uh, we had uh, there's a, our, I guess our kind of our Eastern Canadian long distance championships. I uh, I actually won the race out of default. The guy who won got disqualified. Oh, and why? Uh, uh, he he actually had some problems on the bike and a car rode up next to him and gave him allen keys and they basically fixed his bike while he was riding the bike and so it was kind of one of those where like you know he probably would have beat me anyways but the he just he got disqualified and uh and the first place prize was to go race this race in japan called astroman I've oh, done really? that one. I've done that. Yeah, one. you guys done it on Sato yeah. Island. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I I went to Astroman in uh, 1993, and the day before the event happened, there, there was a I can't remember it was a typhoon or a hurricane, so they had to cancel the swim, 
and I, you have to remember, I still wasn't a good swimmer at this time. I, I was I was horrible in the swim. And uh, so they canceled the swim and they made it, uh, I think it was 8.5 kilometer run, 180 kilometer bike, 42 kilometer, you know, run. It's like the world's longest duathlon. Mm. And, and I won. <laughs> really? And uh, that was kind of when I'm like, maybe my body likes this long course stuff, you know. And that's, that was kind of like, that was where all of a sudden I was like, maybe I need to get away from this short course ITU kind of stuff and focus a little bit longer on on the on the long course stuff and uh a month later i ended up at the hawaii ironman and yet again i didn't know how to swim and uh by the time i got out of the water i was exhausted and i never finished the race wait so you so you just entered the ironman straight away or um i had done um back then you could actually qualify for hawaii through sprint sprint triathlon (laughs) nice yeah yeah it was crazy you could do sprints or olympic distance and there's all kinds of events all across north america so i managed to get a spot for the hawaii ironman uh, at a sprint race (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't be like nowadays i tell you (laughs) So, so back then was there um you know, obviously, you you, you you sort of sounds like you made that decision that short course was not going to be your gig, and you were going to go long um, from a fairly early early time in your career. Was it, did any support from Triathlon Canada or anything back then, or did you basically it was it was uh, you know Peter Reed uh, Incorporated to support yourself all the way through? That's pretty much what it was. Although I have to add a bit of an asterisk to that. Um, so I was living in the east side of Canada, and the fall, like, that, that year after, uh, actually it was about two years after that Astroman race, where I decided to really take it up another notch, and I decided to move to the west coast of Canada, where where it doesn't snow. I, you know, Victoria doesn't get any snow, and you can ride year round. And there was a solid triathlon group here in Victoria. There was a good swim coach. It was a it was a triathlon group. Um, I guess you know. You know, now we see a lot of these triathlon squads around the world. With this was was, was kind of like the first of its kind in Canada, and so yet I had no support from Triathlon Canada, but the group here in Victoria really, you know, all of a sudden we had dedicated lanes for swimming, a coach on deck, and then we had you know coaches to help us with the cycling and run groups, and um, so we kind of had our own you know grassroots uh, structured of you know structured organization going on, and that that really helped. When you made the move uh, to you know more you know triathlon training you know, environment that was more conducive to it, what um. What were you? What, where were you trying to focus on getting better at that moment? Obviously, swimming was holding you back, or, or yeah. did you? You know, where did you kind of go? Okay, well, here's where I need to identify and get better. Oh, I, I knew, I knew, I knew. The only way I was going to have a career in triathlon is if I learned how to swim. And the, the biggest reason was I was, you know, a I was coming back, you know, I was exiting the water, you know, so far back. How far back? Like, but, what, 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 what were you swimming? I meant swimming at that time. Uh, I was like around uh, 58, 59 minutes. Yep. And but that fifty eight fifty nine minutes was everything I had. So by the time I got on the bike, I was exhausted. There was no energy. Um, you know, considering later on in life, you know, I come out of the water in about fifty one fifty two minutes, and I had a ton of energy to crank it on the bike and and have an energy after that to run. Mm. So I uh, actually jumped jumped into an uh, an age group squad and. They made me swim with twelve-year-olds for a year, and that's where I learned how to swim. What was that like? It was hard. It was humbling. You know, I was twenty-five years old, and 
you know, hanging around with the 12 year olds and just getting smoked day in and day out. I mean, no <laughs> zero conversation with the 12 year old, you know, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> um, and that was, uh, it was the world of difference. All of a sudden I started getting better and better and better. I never got faster than those little punks, but eventually I could keep up. Yeah. Well, what, what, what did you kind of learn from that experience from, you know, like what were the lessons you learned about your technique in that time? Um, it was just mileage, really. really. All of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden my shoulders got looser and my, you know, my glide got better. And, you know, to, even to make the, the, you know, the send-off times, I had to really focus on streamlining. And, you know, all of a sudden my ankles got looser. So all of a sudden I had a better flutter kick. And really it was just time in the pool, time in the pool, back and forth. Eventually the body just started changing and adapting to becoming a swimmer. Mm-hmm. So, so you're on this journey to be a pro triathlete, which I think, you know, for a lot of our listeners, they think this is going to be glamorous and it's going to be awesome. But I'm, I'm interested to know um, what was really driving you to, to be an athlete. You know, was there any, you know, did you have this, this one sort of thing that was inside you that was just making you get out there and do it all the time? Had you seen Hawaii? Was it, or was it trying to prove to other people that you could do it? Or what, what was a, a really big driver for you? Uh, well, it was, it was... Honestly, for for the first few years, um, when I made the move to Victoria, uh, I had nothing. I was super poor. I was living, you know, on cots in people's houses. And, you know, I I had made the decision to move across the country to see how far I could be, uh, how good I could be as an athlete. And, uh, you know, my dad kind of wrote me off and and said, basically, you're never going to amount to anything. You know, you need to get a real job. Oh, yeah, I was, I had no support at home. And it was basically a question of survival. I, I had, I either had to do it, or I was going to have nothing. And it was, uh, I, I had no choice. I had, I had to excel. I had to become better. I had to make it. And there's, you know, I would say my first six to seven years of racing Ironman, I would be out there struggling on the bike and thinking of my dad just basically saying, get a real job. You're never going to do anything with that. And uh-huh. all of a sudden, you know, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself switching to two harder gears and, you know, all of a sudden you're riding by like Christian Bustos or something like that. <laughs> and you're just like, you don't even pay attention to him. You're like, I'm in fifth. I need to get the first, you know, I got to prove everybody wrong. And I had a lot of that, you know, a lot of people are like, what are you doing? You know, what do you, it's not a profession, you know, you're never going to do anything. There's no, there's no signs of talent. And, um, yeah, that's kind of, it was, it was, I had to, I had to make it happen. Did did, did your dad come around? Oh yeah. And it actually ruined my, my, my racing for about a year. Oh really? Uh, Yeah. It was actually after I won Hawaii and for my second time. In 2000, uh, he sent me this super long letter apologizing, and um, it was actually a pretty emotional letter. And I didn't race a year for a year. Uh, a year, I, I had a horrible stint. I, I, I DNF'd out of Kauai. Um, I had horrible races. And it's because I lost my drive. I really? All of a sudden, I didn't, wow. I didn't really know why I was racing anymore. I wasn't training hard anymore. And you had nothing to prove. I, yeah, exactly. I gained a bunch of weight, and it just wasn't there. And then I just... It uh, and then after that it was I uh, you could actually see if you look at my career it's like this linear progression, and then at 2000 I just basically after that I was like I'd have a good race and I'd have a bad race and I'd have a good race, and it was because I was 
struggling to find a drive for each one of those races. And sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work. And um, that was kind of the rest of my career was like that because I'd lost, I'd lost that initial, you know, fight to survive. What, what year did you say that was again? 2000. After 2000. I, I think I You'll know. start seeing a lot of DNFs out of <laughs> 2000. I think I know the real reason. You can, you can make that up all those stories, but 19, we'll, we'll come back to that later John in the show. John once. You're going to hear about it. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but, but, um, but when you, so can I just ask, we're kind of getting a bit ahead of ourselves here, but you kind of opened up a pretty interesting discussion here. With, at that time, when you did do well, what was the driver then? I when I, what do you mean? I don't understand the question. Oh, okay, so no, like, so like, once you found out your father, your father came around, and you lost yeah. your, your purpose. When you did yeah. race well, what was the purpose? You know, what did shift you in the times you did do well, or was it just that well, you had a good history? No, I actually after after that, it was uh, I, I raced well on aggression. Okay, and so um, just started scouring triathlete magazine and finding someone who badmouthed me and going out there <laughs> oh, really? and proving a point <laughs> seriously that's that's how it was that's i tried racing for money um thinking about like you know a big purse like ironman germany something like that and racing for money never worked never money never worked for me it would always have to be um i remember one year afterwards dave scott said i couldn't run and so i went to kona and and uh, he was out there on the course, and every time I saw him, I went faster and faster and faster on the run. It was stuff like that that helped motivate me. Wow, fascinating. Uh, we'll yeah, I know, a little sadistic, eh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we were. Oh, wow. <laughs> we'll just take a quick break, and we'll be back with Peter in just one moment. Sponsor John, and we're going to talk about Tanya Pora. I'm so excited, Bevan, I just can't hide it. I, I could tell you were pretty excited. Yeah, so coming up uh, at Tanya Pora later this year in September um, I'm going to be putting on a camp over, we need to say which year John because this show is going to go on forever <laughs> that's true you know people, you might get emails from people in 2020 going oh well, I'm really keen on this camp yes and you go oh actually that was in 2013 2013 yes 5th to the 8th of September 2018 so I'm putting on a camp over there well they're, they're putting it on and I'm um in attendance along with the legendary Jürgen Zack. So Great. we're basically going to be leading the camp. It's going to be a four-day camp. Um, pretty epic style. You know, there's going to be quite a bit of training in there. It's going to be some um, educational stuff going on as well. Um, but I'm really looking forward to staying at this place. It looks awesome online. All the feedback we get from people that have been there is it is fantastic and so the timing for this is really ideal for anybody who's uh, going to Kona or looking to do a bit of base work leading into a sort of late year Ironman race in 2013 or, or half Ironman race that being maybe I had one guy contact me who's doing um, WA so it's quite good timing for that um, other people who are doing some races in Asia sort of late season races Phuket or, or similar so it's pretty reasonably priced uh, twin share really reasonably priced. Uh, 1100 US uh, single it's 1400 US and that's basically when you arrive that's all inclusive that's you get four, four nights, nights accommodation you get airport transport all your meals even your sports nutrition you get a camp t-shirt you get a kind of information pack you're coaching with the legendary coach John Newsom <laughs> and uh, Jürgen Zack from Tanyapora the support van mechanic you get a, a sports mind training session and you get a massage mm. So, so this is going to be a wicked four days. Gonna, if you haven't done a camp before, camps are a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. The type of camps that I like to be involved in is, is the athletes don't have to stress about anything. Um, yep. So you turn up, all you're doing is training. You don't have to piss around with your your bags and all that sort of stuff or do any cooking or cleaning or anything. You're basically there to train. You, you, you get that 
pro athlete experience, pro mm. cyclist experience, where you know mm. all they do is worry about their training. Mm. So it's good times. Uh, so if anybody's keen, just contact me through any of the through our IM Talk page, or ideally through CoachJohnNewsom.com, um, or you can contact the guys at Tanya Pro Direct, and we'll put you on to them. Uh, and it should be good times. Um, they've also got another camp on this year as well with Belinda Granger, which is going to be in August. So that's going to be a women's only camp. So if that's more your, um, it might tickle your fancy a bit more. Check that out. Go to tanyapora.com. And with any of these types of camps, things, or, or anything you do down there, you can always extend your stay if you want to be there a bit longer. One guy emailed me about saying, oh, I want to come on the camp. I'm just going to get the approval from the wife. And I was like, bring her along. She can go to the, yeah. um, go and do stuff and while we're there and, and relax and chill out. And they've got plenty of, uh, plenty of things to keep them occupied. They've also got a kids' center as well. So if you've got the kids, easy. So awesome. I'll be able to let you guys know what it's like later in the year. But, uh, Seriously, if you are considering a good time away, look at this. TanyaPora.com. And if you're ever booking anything, use the code IAMTALK and uh, you get yourself a nice discount. I'll do that. Mm. Oh, good times. So make sure you do that. Okay, guys, let's go back to Peter Reid. Righty-ho. Um, we've heard some awesome stuff so far, but we're keen to hear a bit about uh, about the racing. And I've got to start with this. One of the, it's one of the classic um, YouTube clips of triathlon that I think I've ever seen. And... Uh, <laughs> is you, you, I showed it. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I showed it to something last week. <laughs> oh, did you really? <laughs> the, 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 so the, if you could do a Google search, and you can, uh, I don't know what you'd search actually, but probably Peter Reed and wrote, and, and I'm not sure what year it was. I think but, it's cyclist can't, a uh, triathlete can't get on his bike, and there's 35,000 hits. It really? Is. And if only you get the ads from it. So, so, so what the hell was happening? It was in road, and Peter could not get on his bike. He jumped on his bike, he fell off his bike, jumped on, fell off, jumped on, fell off. What was going on there? Uh, absolutely rookie mis- mistake. I'd been racing all year with your standard. Uh, I was riding a soft ride at the, at that time, and the soft ride only has one water bottle holder on the on the kind of like that aero down tube. Mm. And uh, I actually didn't like the liquids that were on the course in Germany, so I'm like, I need to get more water bottles on my bike. So. I uh, put the water bottle on my down tube and I got one of those, you know, water bottle mounts that go behind your saddle. Yeah. And uh, I put it on the night before the race. Uh, okay. And so all year I've been, you know, I have my pedals, my shoes on my pedals and I would exit transition T1, get as much speed and then jump onto my saddle, get my feet on top of my shoes and start pedaling, get up the speed. So here I come out of the water. I had an awesome swim, like a really good swim at the time. And, um, I, uh, I, you know, I grab my bike and I start running and I go to jump on my saddle and I'm on the ground. I'm lying face <laughs> first. And you have to imagine that Armin Germany is a really big deal. There's a stadium yeah, yeah. Um, with spectators yeah. watching you yeah. get on your bike. And so here I am flat on the ground. And then I'm like kind of in shock and didn't really tune into why that had happened. So I got back up, grabbed my bike, got back up to speed, went to jump back on my saddle on the ground again. And by that time, um, my water balls went flying, but I didn't really know what was happening. So I grabbed my bike for the third time. And uh, finally, the third time I got back up and my knees are bloody. I've got blood on my elbows. And the commentator at the time is going, and Peter Reed, known for his cycling, is clearly having trouble getting on his bicycle. <laughs> and they're like, he will clearly never forget this Ironman. <laughs> How did you get on in that race? 
I ended up fourth. Fourth, not bad. Yeah. Yeah, um, that was the first time uh, someone cracked eight hours. That was the year Lothar Leader went under eight oh, hours. Oh, really? Well, oh, yes, I remember it well. Um, obviously, we'll talk about your, your Kona races um, in a bit of detail, but I was, I was um, interested to find out about, you know, everyone's going to always ask you about those, but um, be really keen to hear about some of your non-Kona sort of Kona victories or memorable performances. We had a question from one of the, the listeners. He said to ask Peter about your breakthrough race in Nice in 1995 oh, yeah. when uh, Lessing won, Luke Van Laird was second, yeah. and you were third. So maybe tell us a bit about um, about that race in Nice. For sure. That, I do definitely consider that my, my biggest breakthrough. Um, I, uh, I had... The hero was going to Europe. I managed to save enough money to pay for the airfare. And uh, I had to take the city bus uh, from the airport to Nice, you know, with my bike box and everything. Mm. You can imagine traveling from Europe. And then I remember the bus was about, uh, bus stop was about uh, 2K from the hostel I was staying at. And I'm pushing, you know, my bike box through all the cobbled streets to find my hostel. And it was kind of like, you know, a self-funded world. And... Mm. Um, had had no idea how it was gonna go, but you know, as I, I and I just started working with my coach, who I ended up being coached by for about ten years, and it was our first race together, where it was that was the big focus of the year, and uh, I had no idea how how it was gonna go, and uh, I had a pretty good swim and pretty solid bike. Uh, it was kind of you know I could kind of always see blessing. And no one really knew Luke Van Leerd at the time. He was kind of kind of kind of coming up as me. Everybody knew him in Europe, but being a North American, I didn't quite know who he was. But I knew who Lessing was. You know, he was on magazine covers. Oakley, you know, was using him in all their ads. And you know, I remember being, if I can stay close to this guy, I'm gonna have a good day. And got off the bike, and I remember going, "This feels easy. Like wow. I'm not struggling on the run here. Like the, the training kind of worked." And uh ended up I think it was fifth off the bike and passed a couple of guys on the run and you know crossed the finish line and it was Simon Luke Van Leard and me and and that's when I knew I was like I was like next year I'm going to Kona and I'm going to do something really and that was that was kind of when it really opened my eyes and I'm like this is I'm I'm going for it now like it just kind of like you know I was kind of like can I you know you have those doubts in your mind and after crossing that finish line in Nice I was like it was no longer can I do it I'm like I'm going to make this happen and so back then uh, paycheck was reasonable um, it was obviously it was the ITU world long distance champs I think um, did that sort yeah, it was, of it was 4,000 for third so that was my biggest paycheck ever and uh, it didn't help really with sponsors um, nothing uh, I didn't really get anything out of it in terms of sponsor because it was a race in Europe and yeah. no one really knew about ITU World. So. Mm. And, and what about some of your other Ironman victories? You know, you had two victories in Canada. Um, you had three in Australia. And well, when, when, when did you first win? Yeah. Uh, my first win was Ironman Australia in 1997. And that was the, let me see, that, that was yeah, 96. So Nice was 1995. Yeah. And then '96, uh, that following year in Kona, I was fourth, and I was the only North American in the top, I think, 15. <laughs> and uh, when I crossed the finish line in 1996 in Kona, that's when everything changed. Even you know, I placed that 1996. I was fourth arm in Germany, 
second in Ironman Canada behind Thomas Hell Regal, who set a course record, and I broke the course record too. Nice. And then I was fourth in Hawaii, and I remember crossing the finish line, and all of a sudden, Specialized wanted to sign me, Reebok wanted to sign me, Power Bar wanted to sign really? me, Oakley wanted, it just like everything changed. And that was when I quit my job at the running store <laughs> and focused entirely. And then I got an invite um, from Ironman Australia, and it was the first time I'd, I'd received an invite. They were like, we'll pay your airfare. Come on down. We'd love to have you. We've got a stack field of Germans. We think you can race them. And um, open open arms. And I felt super welcomed. And um, there I was, you know, and ended up racing head-to-head with uh, Jürgen Zach all day and managed to outrun him, and that was my first big win. Yeah, right. now, now, now you ran in one of the Australian races. You ran... Austria. Austria, was it? Aust- 235. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a 235 with an asterisk. <laughs> really? <laughs> Good honesty. Nice honesty. Yeah. No, I'm, there's, a, there's a big asterisk on that one. <laughs> the race refuses to acknowledge the asterisk, but I will. I think yeah. I ran a 240, 241. Yeah. Yeah, just a bit short, yeah. was it? Yeah, just a, just a, just a wee short. <laughs> but can, I, can I ask, you know, so this stage you're starting, you know, you're, you're making waves. And obviously, if you're the first North American out of 15, you obviously got a lot of exposure because you're North American, you know, and everyone else is obviously European athletes. Um, what was it like to become, what was, can you talk about the transition of becoming, you know, just a, a battling guy who's trying to make it to becoming one of the names and then eventually being the man? What's that like? Um, well, I was never really that popular in Canada. The year, the first year I won Hawaii, 1998, I, uh, I was actually voted, um, I actually got the prize for Canada's, uh, male athlete of the year. I beat out, uh, uh, Donovan Bailey, the sprinter and some pretty big hockey. It was a really, really big deal. And, but, uh, I could have, I guess it was a choice to become a celebrity or not, yep. and I decided not. Yep. And um, I did what I had to do for sponsors, but I have always shied away from that. Even, um, and so I was never a big celebrity. Simon Whitfield's a really good friend with with mine. Actually, we rode four hours yesterday together. And after Simon won Sydney, he chose the other path, and he's a huge star in Canada. You know, mm. he's he's a he's a very very well named well-known name um but it was just different different choices can i can i ask on within even the triathlon community what was it like that transition of being you know i'm always just really interested in that whole idea of suddenly you're the man you know you're the person that everyone else is looking up to and even within your own little world of the triathlon world you're in what was that like that transition uh it was a little odd at first um all of a sudden you know I never felt like there was a problem anywhere except when I went to Hawaii. Oh, really? Um, where you're walking down the street and you can feel everybody staring at you and you know, everything you do, everybody's watching. And I, I never really enjoyed that. So all of a sudden I found myself staying farther and farther and farther away from race, <laughs> um, you know, where the venues were. And, you know, if everybody was running Tuesday morning, I was running Tuesday evening and starting to train earlier and later in the days and, just, I really do not like being the public eye, even to this day. And, you know, the hardest part of my day at work is doing passenger briefings. I hate it <laughs> because I, I have to talk to people and I like just kind of focusing on what I have to do myself. 
Nice. So, so before we go on to Kona, um, are there any other races that you know you've got really fond memories of? You know, you talked about Nice there, and and, and obviously your, your time over in Australia. Is there any other ones that you think you know that, that perhaps you did well at, or maybe even you didn't do well at that have still got very fond memories? Uh, Wildflower, the half Ironman in California. That was my very very first. That was my first pro win. Um, mm. And uh, that that is you know my first I think it was it was 1996, and I won that race. I built a, a, I beat a pretty solid field like Pauly Cure was there and a lot of Wolfgang Dietrich and um, there's a lot of big guys there and um, that was pretty good. Definitely Ironman Australia. I love that Foster course. I love the um, the community. I was really sad when they lost lost the race. Um, to and I kind of hear they're kind of resurrecting a half Ironman there. Well, that, that, no, that, that's what I thought too. Well, yeah. we, we had that on our news last week, and it's uh, it's going to Foster. No, 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 no. It is Foster. We got it wrong. Yeah, we got it wrong. Yeah. So it's oh. not going to where Iron Man used to be. We got, oh, okay. we, got, we got it wrong. I thought that too, but there's a little yeah. R in there. Uh, so yeah. yeah, no, I, that was I. That was, I thought it was a great place for a race, and I um I, ju- I just absolutely love racing there. It was great. Um, my biggest regret ever of triathlon was not racing Ironman New Zealand. Uh. I, yeah, I wish that was always on my radar. But uh, I always I always had to dig so deep in Hawaii that I couldn't get my fitness back for New Zealand. Oh, well, come along uh, next year. I'm, I'm lining <laughs> yeah. up. I uh, have a rematch 2014. Yeah. Th- th- yeah. th- no, that was actually one of, my, one of my biggest regrets is not doing that race because I've heard so many good things about that course. Mm. Um, so it's obviously on to Kona. You know, um, you said in 95, you know, you did Nice and you're thinking, right, 96, I'm going to go and smash Kona. Um, was the appeal for Kona the fact that it was uh, it was the world champs and the, and the best of the year, it's the best prize money um, and, and it is the world champs, or was there something else about that race that, that drew you to it? It was, uh, at first, it was because of, um, like, the media and the publicity and, you know, it was the, it was the biggest event of the sport you know everybody was there everybody was watching it wasn't like a race where someone was training through like if you're on the start line in Kona is because you were at the best possible peak performance like mm-hmm. you there was nobody who was just kind of half you know half doing it or was something else on the radar that was and the idea of racing the best in the world at their best uh, at a long course event really drew me in and then eventually it was because the course really suited me. I really liked the course. I'm, I'm, I ride awesome on false flats into winds. Uh, the, the run course, it just suited my style. And that's kind of where I, I was just drawn to it because it, it, I found it easier than other races. Do, do you like the idea, you know, Kona is, is, is now the, you know, it's the pinnacle of the sport, you know. I mean, we can argue till the cows come home about um yeah. about a, a short course and everything but Kona is 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 really the pinnacle do you like that or, or would you have rather seen it, it sort of um there'd be some other really really high profile races well back in the day I, I definitely favored it because because the course suited my style mm-hmm. um um but I think now it should it actually should rotate around a little bit um I think it would be good for the sport particularly if it was a it would move around the continent a little bit, kind of like what the UCI does. But there's so much history to Kona that it would it'd be hard to replicate. 
So, so talk us through your, your kind of progression. Um, I think you said you know you qualified first uh, via the sprint distance race, and that didn't didn't go so well. But maybe just talk us through your progression up to 1998 when you had your first win. Uh, well, 1993 I DNF'd, and then I went back in 1994 and DNF'd, and then I started working with uh, Rock Fry, my coach, and that's when I decided we decided to skip a year in Kona and go do Nice and see and train properly for Nice and, and see how I would do. And uh, Nice went amazing, and that's where the focus went on really focusing on our men and really trying to nail Kona and so I did I placed fourth and then the following year um, I placed fourth but um, I felt I should have won that year and it was another rookie mistake Um, race week I was noticing a lot of the German guys were riding with these really forward saddle positions and I changed my saddle position race week (laughs) yeah classic you know here you are you're, you're focusing your entire year and I ended up pulling something on my hamstring mm-hmm. on the bike. And I was actually going to drop out. And it was a huge learning. Um, I, was, uh, I was about 100K into the bike. And I was pulling over to the side of the road to drop out because my hamstring was hurting. And I was just like, I could just feel I was losing power on the bike. And right where I was about to pull over, my coach was standing. And I, I hadn't timed it that way at all. It just, it just kind of worked out that way. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I, I pulled something on my, you know, on my hamstring. It's just not going well. He's like, you're going to freaking finish this race, even if you have to limp. You've, you've, your entire year is based on this race. You're not going to pull out like that. So I was like, all right, I'll show you. I'm going to put myself in the hospital. I'm going to go <laughs> so freaking hard. And I ended up coming off the bike in 15th. And I remember starting the run with that mentality. I'm like, okay, this, that's that's the way you're gonna. And there's the you know the the aggression that I have. I work really well off you know negative energy. And uh, I ran all the way up to third, and then freaking Welchy passed me with two miles to go, and I dropped down to fourth. <laughs> and that's when I was like, man, I'm a runner. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and then the next year I won. And I, I actually outran Luke Van Leer during the marathon. Not many people would have picked, So, so you, did you get off the bike with Luke or what was he? Uh, no, I actually came off the bike with an eight-minute lead. I rode with uh, Thomas and Jürgen. And the three of us were, I think Jürgen was a minute up the road. Thomas and I were going back and forth the entire bike. We had an eight-minute lead over Luke and a couple of other guys. And uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. A buddy there who was watching me race and he was kind of like leapfrogging me and giving me splits. And we figured that I needed 10 minutes to beat Luke Van Leert. Yeah. Because um, he was, you know, he's a phenomenal. He was a 242 runner. And my best was like 253 on the marathon. So we figured 10 minutes, anything less than 10, it was going to be really close. And I got about, you know, 20K in on the run and I was holding eight minutes. And then, you know, I came out of the energy lab and I was still holding, I think it was about eight minutes still. I, I was holding, he wasn't gaining. And my buddy was just like, eight minutes. He's like, and I still, I had 10K to go. And my buddy was worried. And he's like, oh, and the guy next to him, he goes, what's the split? And my buddy's like, Peter's, Peter's ahead eight minutes on Luke. And uh, the buddy's like, oh, he's going to win. Peter's going to win. It's done. It's done. 
And um, my buddy's like, well, what do you know? He's like, I'm Luke's trainer. He's done. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up running, I think, I think I I ran a couple of minutes faster than him. Nice. It would have been buzz. So, so, you know, 1998, you you take the victory. Does does your whole world change um, pretty big time pretty quickly or, or not too much? Oh, I, it changed on the flight home from uh, Hawaii. So there I was flying back to Canada. I'm, uh, I'm sitting in coach and the flight attendant comes up and says, uh, Mr. Reed, Ironman World Champions don't fly coach. Come up with me. And nice. I was first class. <laughs> so, and then I got invited by the uh, Vancouver Sun newspaper to go watch ACDC in their private box. And, <laughs> But then that's like that's when I said I I had the choice and I didn't and I kind of tried to avoid that as much as possible afterwards. What, what's, what's the satisfaction like? You know, like you know, so many people dream of just completing an Ironman, and then you know, then there's the elite bunch of people in this world who choose to be a pro, and you know, there's a handful of people who have ever crossed the line being world champion. Um, what's it like? What's the satisfaction like? Um, unfortunately for me, it was too short lived. I was uh, it was. Another one of my weaknesses, I never really enjoyed my wins. I always looked at what my faults were on race day and tried to improve. Uh, okay. So it was never, you know, it was never like, oh man, I'm on top of the world. It was more like, uh, you know, there was a couple of hiccups there on the swim. There's a couple of hiccups on the bike. You know, how do I get faster? How do I get faster? And so I never really sat back to um, enjoy, you know, what I had done. The only time that really happened for me was uh, I got inducted into... Canada Sports Hall of Fame two years ago and that was the first time where I was really it really hit me that I had done something really special in in the sport of triathlon Um, yeah leading up to 1998 I mean what what were the some of the key lessons that you you learned from you know obviously you you had some you you were moving up from from fourth and from DNFing what were some of the the key things that, that you you figured out to help you get across that line first place the, our, our biggest focus was um, laying a huge foundation aerobically, um, taking the time over the winter time over the winter months to just slowly build my base miles, and uh, we focused a ton on becoming efficient, uh, not wasting any energy. So, I did a lot of drills in the pool, a lot of single leg, you know, drills on the bike, and a ton of run drills on the run just to try and make sure that I was using the least amount of energy to go as fast as I could. Rather than a lot of people were doing these hard intervals to try and get faster and faster, I was going the other way of trying to go, how can I go as fast as I can using the least amount of energy as possible? Mm. And we just kind of focus and focus. And you can kind of see my run form is very methodical. Like it's almost like I almost look like a robot when I'm running because you can actually see my run drills and my run form. And I was just focusing so much on trying to be as efficient, as efficient, as efficient. And even racing, you know, we always had a plan of, okay, go up the hills steady work the top of the crime, work the downhills, never attack the hills, always steady up the hill, crest the climb, attack the downhill. And it was all about trying to keep the heart rate as steady as possible without spiking the heart rate, leading to lactic acid. And it was, that was kind of like the process that we were always working over and over and over and over again. Was that quite like you know like nowadays the kind of the efficiency and with the tools, you know, we, we, it seems to be a common theme, but was mm-hmm. that kind of, was that kind of a bit ahead of its time? 
I, I truly believe it was because I felt like I was the only one who was really doing it at the time. Mm-hmm. What about inside your inside the noggin, inside your head? Um, you know, <laughs> we're getting deep. We talk about um, what you you know you, you talked a lot about the negative energy that, that that sort of helped propel you along. But you know, so if you're in a race and, and things aren't quite going um, according to plan, what sort of strategies and techniques did you use to to try to um, get yourself back on task? Uh, well, I had this little, like, the negative energy only kind of, kind of only popped up when things, when I had to dig deep, when there was kind of like, okay, you're at a crucial point here, you know, either the switch is on or it's off. And I, I used the negative energy to get it on, but it only popped up, like I said, only popped up a few times during key moments within the race. All the other time I was, it was extremely analytical and the, my thought process was, you know, okay, how's my form? You know, how's my energy? Have, have I been drinking enough? Have I, have I been eating enough? You know, how how's the past few segments been going? You know, like, you know, kind of an, uh, an evaluation of, of my, you know, how the race is actually going and what's coming up down the road. Like, what's next? Is there a hill coming up or, you know, or, or am I coming into transition? Do I need to start working about it? And then number five was just disassociation. And just kind of think of something else. And I would kind of rotate through those thoughts over and over and over and over again. Pete, you know, you win 98, you know, pretty cool. But again, you kind of say you don't really allow yourself to have it. You go back 99 and you, and you get second. What, how did you respond when you didn't win? Like if, if you weren't that good, kind to yourself when you won, what was it like when you didn't win? Uh, I usually left the, uh, ended up into uh, deep overtraining. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, just go crazy with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm no, I'm pretty hard on myself, and uh, I would always take it out uh, really, really hard on myself on and uh, why I didn't perform. And it was always a bit of a a struggle to get a get back from those uh, some bad performances. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we'll talk about some of that in a moment. Um, we'll just take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Peter in just a moment. Sponsor John. So Bevan. This time, when this show actually comes out, which will be on June the 1st, yep. 2013, I'll be in the middle of a race in Hawaii. I'll be doing the 70.3 on the oh, same day. First. Oh, yes. wow. Great. And in How the, are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. And do you know why I'm doing great? Because um, you swam in a blue 70 wetsuit? Well, I didn't swim in a wetsuit probably in, in, in Hawaii. Probably in the PZ3TX, probably. Yes. So this yes. is going to be my first experience with the PZT. PZ3TX. That's uh, a mouthful, isn't it? It is. <laughs> um, so I've, I've trialled it several times in the pool looking forward to using that so if you are ever doing a, a non-wetsuit swim this is the business what you need to be getting getting yourself into main reasons are firstly it's faster um you know you're going you're to get a ballpark around about one second per hundred meters in terms of actual speed gains but probably the biggest speed gain you're going to get is you can actually wear your race kit underneath whip it off and then you're into the race and you don't have to be worried about putting anything on in, in transitions so the pz3tx uh, is awesome um, we'll be posting some pictures on uh, on epic camp and also on my um, coach john project 2014 site um, so check that out and the other thing that we're going to do in kona and uh, is we're going to catch out with pete jacobs who oh, now yeah, is, yeah. is swimming and he's now swimming in the blue 70 so he's loving it this is going to be uh I think it's going to be his first race of the season. Oh, great. But that's one thing. If you're the world champion, lots of doors open to you, and yep. you're going to want to have the best gear, and you're going to have offers from all the different companies, and you're going to go, 
do I either go the, with the route where it's going to give me the, the most amount of money or I'm just going to go down the route of getting the best product and we know that with Blue 70 you're getting a seriously kick-ass product and if it's good enough for Pete Jacobs it should be good enough for everybody else. That's right, mate. Pete Jacobs knows how to swim and if you're going to follow someone in the swimming it's going to be him, it, isn't it? It is and it's critical for him because yeah, as you said, he, he's one of the leaders in the swim and he does not want to be farting around in that swim with, with gear that is not that is not good. So uh, Pete is in it. It's got to be good. This month, we're going to have a Blue 70 auction for a wetsuit, so a Helix wetsuit. So if you're coming into your season or if you're looking for for next season, um, check it out. We'll have it up on legendsoftriathlon.com. There'll be a link through to um, eBay, and uh, they'll be running from the 1st through to the 10th of June. So check that out. Everybody always gets a killer deal, and you also get an awesome wetsuit. Good times, so rock and roll. Blue 70, guys, it's a great, great website and a great, great gear, so um, get on it. Um, one area that um, we, we used to hear a lot about from, from Mark Allen, you know, he'd go off into the into the desert and um, and hang out talk with the, the gods, to, talk to the Indians and, and <laughs> what have you. And, and so we had a question here um, uh, from Travis Tremaine. He said, I wouldn't mind knowing about your process you went through sort of six weeks out from Kona. He heard that you went quite inward and went um, out on your own into the hills of Hawaii for about three to four weeks out from the race. Um, and somebody, Ned Phillips, also asked about a cave that you might have gone to in Kona. <laughs> so, so can you maybe fill us in on what... Is it true, first of all? And if so, tell us the details. Yeah. Uh, it is true. It was actually it was happening towards... Um kind of when I had a little bit more money to spend on my training and uh, I, I felt that my training had plateaued a little bit and uh, so yeah I was I actually rented this uh, this cabin uh, on the big island and it was at 6,000 feet uh, it was basically on the road that goes between um, Waimea over to Hilo and uh, I would rent this cabin live up there for three weeks and basically drive down the mountain you know do my training down below you know, and then at the end of the day, I'd drive back up the mountain and spend time in the cabin. And there's no internet, no TV, just a book, and just it was a way of you know, getting my thoughts together. And uh, and and it was also a little bit of the live at altitude, train at sea level. And I did that for three years, and uh, it worked. I felt it worked pretty good. It was probably fairly cool up at that that level, though. Oh yeah, it was. It was. Because, uh, you know, it wasn't that solitary. I would do my bike rides by myself, and I do most of all my running. But I swam with the swim group in Kona, mm-hmm. uh, the Kona, Kona Masters Aquatic. And they had, a, you know, here I would I'd be showing up to swim practice on, you know, with my down jacket, wool socks and everything. And everybody's in flip-flops. And I'm like, it's freezing up there. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about your, your other training? You know, you, you, I'm sure you've got a... a <clears throat> A reasonable idea of what what other people do and, and sort of the textbook way to train you've talked a bit about the um the you know doing a lot of technique work and a lot of drill work it was there um anything else you sort of did that was you know a little bit un, unorthodox um i think one of the other things that i had these uh call them my psycho weekends where you know i'd get up early in the morning go to the pool swim an hour by myself head back home, have something to eat, go out and ride seven hours by myself, come home, do a transition, have a Coke or something like that to just get a little bit of energy going, go for an hour run, uh, have a shake, um, eat something uh, eat something solid, and then go do weights, usually about 45 to 50 minutes in the weight room, 
come home, have a big dinner, pass out. And then the first thing at the crack of dawn, the second I woke up, I'd have a cup of coffee and go for a long run. And uh, come home from that, rest a little bit, have a recovery ride, and then go for a second run in the uh, in the evenings. And, you know, all that, all that, that entire Saturday, Sunday was by myself doing that. And I always call those my cycle weekends, and that was part of my Ironman training. That I would I would start doing that about uh, nine weeks out, all the way to about three weeks out. Wow! How, how does um how did your body handle all the training? Uh, I'm actually really lucky that uh, physiologically that um, uh, I, I never really got injured, and uh, my weakness was always uh, kind of internal health that I would have like iron deficiencies and. Um, and stuff like that. So, uh, uh, but luckily, I was I could I could hammer out the mileage, and my body would uh, would adapt to it. Because about nutrition, yeah, there was a few um, neurotic stories going around about how, and and, and I don't think they're pretty true. They're, they're pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you pretty disciplined in terms of uh, what you kept in your pantry, and did you yeah. go shopping for one day's food at a time? That's true. That's true. Um, uh, yeah, basically it was, it was kind of some, it's a little bit over the top, but uh, it's something I discovered when I was living and racing in Germany, um, that there everybody shops daily. And in North America, we tend to have this, go to the superstore, buy mega food, put it in the cupboards. <coughs> and there was always, I found there was always temptation. So I just started buying food on a daily basis. And my fridge and my covers would be absolutely empty. <laughs> and uh, it was just the, so I could try and, you know, I'm one of these people that it's a, it's hard for me to lose weight. Yet, if I could be under 165 pounds for race day, I knew I could run under 240, 248, 247, somewhere around there. If I was over 165 pounds, I couldn't run under 250. So... You know, it was linked to my performance, but it was really hard for me to do. I'm I'm a bigger guy naturally, but I forced myself to drop weight so that I could run that well off the bike. Um, it sounds like you, you know, you, like you know, you definitely sound like the 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 ideal model for the thinking for an athlete. You know, you, you seem to be very disciplined, and in, in every area it took to be great. Did, did you give other areas of your life to have to to relax? Uh well, now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, um, I kind of a funny story that uh, I talked to Mark Allen about this, and he was, you know, he's like, you know, he, he's like, you need to find, uh, you know, an outlet. You know, for me, it's shamanism. That's kind of, and I'm like, well, when I ride my motorcycle, I, I'm like in the now. And he's like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> and he was just like, here's this guy who's like a total shaman who's totally into like, you know, this whole you know, these thoughts and everything. And here he's just going, yeah, motorcycle would work. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. And yeah, whenever I got on my motorcycle, would, everything would stop. And it was kind of my form of just getting away from it all. Oh, great. So, so I guess the final thing, I've sort of, or a couple of other things on training. So, so knowing what you, you know, this, knowing what you know now about training and, and looking back on your career, would you have, have, have trained any differently um, when you're, when you're at your peak, knowing what you know now, or would you have pretty much done the same thing? I uh, would have probably trained almost the exact same way. I would have, I think I would have not participated in, um, 
I guess there was one year I probably shouldn't have. In 2001, I probably shouldn't have raced. I should have taken a year off, and I probably would have raced a little bit longer. Um, Why? Like I said, I was just dealing with stuff with my dad and the you know lack of drive, and yep. I was entering races where I didn't really want to be there, and I had you know I just I probably should have taken that year off, and it would have. Um, I still have a little bit of trouble with triathlon. I'm still a little bit bitter from it because I gave it everything that I had. And you know what I mean? Like it it just, it's like, you know, during this conversation, all of a sudden I'm just like, oh boy, I really, everything that I had was about triathlon. Every, Mm. every moment, every thought. And um, I probably should have enjoyed the ride a little bit more than, than I did. Um, we, we often hear the stories about you and, and Tim DeBoom training and, and how that sort of relationship developed. And, and um, did, did you like training with others or you, you tended to prefer to do your own thing? Uh, there's a few people that I really like training with. I'm really, really picky on who I trained with. Um, uh, Tim was one of the guys who just had this just almost like the zen like we'd we'd do these long rides and some days there'd be a lot of conversation other days we'd hardly speak but that was fine we were just comfortable with each other Uh, i was really lucky to there's a few other guys in town were the same thing um one guy actually that you guys probably heard of Ryder Heshdall and another guy Roland Green same they let they i'd do my long rides with them every once in a while and there was no competition. I guess that's what it is. I just I wasn't looking for someone to compete against. I was looking for somebody to do long rides with. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of triathletes I couldn't train with because they always wanted to race me in training. And I'm not a fast trainer. I race fast, but I'm mm-hmm. quite slow when training. I, I won't dig deep, and I follow my training program, watch my heart rates, and watch my watts. And, and so I was always looking for somebody who would help do the workout with me rather than try and compete in the workout with me. Mm. What's happening to Ryder Heijdal and the Giro? Is he, 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 Giro's on at the moment. He, he was one of the favourites, wasn't he? Yeah, he just had a bad day. He's yeah. been, he had a great first week and then he just totally faded off. And it's, Everybody's pretty sad around here. He's, he's from Victoria, the town that I live in, and so yeah. he's friends with a lot of us. We know him quite well. Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, just, just a bad... It's a bad race. I don't know what's going on. I think he might be sick and he's not letting on to it. But yeah. Well, what about rivals? You know, um, you, you said, you know, once your father had kind of come around, you know, you were looking for people just to kind of to kind of piss you off, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so you, did you have any rivalries other than just when you were looking for it? Uh, there's a few guys I didn't like. <laughs> 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 um. But there's other guys where, like, um, even like Luke Van Leerd, like, you know, here was my biggest rivals, but I had the utmost respect for the guy. And it was about trying to see how fit I could be against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that my motivation was, like, I got to get fitter than this guy. And I know right now, somewhere in the world, he's training just as hard as I am, if not harder. And, you know, the days where I didn't want to get out the door, I'd think about that. I'd think about him on, you know, Lanzarote hammering out these, you know, insane intervals on the track that I'd hear that he was doing. And, and just like, I got to go out and do my training. He's training harder than me right now. And, and that would get me out the door. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, okay, we'll take a quick break. Last sponsor, we'll take, John. Um, global a couple more questions guide. in just a moment. Yes. Go to the Global Adventure 
www.thepodcastguide.com and you come to their homepage and you can search for all sorts of different tours, when you want to do it, where you want to do it, um, type of tour, whether it be road, mountain bike, high altitude. And then down the bottom of the page, they've got their top three cycling tours. And this looks awesome. Um, they've got one in Jordan. It's their most popular. Eight days. Um, more of a, a lifestyle sort of tour, a bit more mountain biking type stuff. Four and a half thousand New Zealand. Pretty pretty good. Yeah. But apparently it is Incredible because I know the the boss there at, um, that goes on that tour as well, and it's just apparently a totally different experience in terms of the things you see. They've also got Vietnam mountain biking tour, fourteen days, two thousand nine hundred New Zealand for fourteen days. Seems so rich, so reasonable, doesn't it? That is awesome. I would love to do something like that through Vietnam. I'm um, seriously thinking about doing it next year with Joe. Mm, oh, Joe just walked in. She's she's given the nod. Yep, yep. We're, we're doing it. Yep, it's see, on. Yep. She's giving me the pass. Uh, and their third, third most uh, popular tour is the Paradise Plus South to North Island Tour. 17 days of road cycling in New Zealand. Just get to see the best of the best. They know all the best roads, what to avoid, what not to avoid, and uh, always look after you. So if any of those tours sound like of interest, they've also got their Tour de France one. Uh, make sure you email them at globaladventureguide.com or give them a call just saying, this is sort of what I'm looking for. Do you have anything in this part of the world or, or anything like that? And they'll give you, you know, obviously look after you. And, and whenever you're emailing these guys, make sure you tell them that you heard about it through uh, Legends of Triathlon. So check it out, uh, globaladventureguide.com. Yep, seriously, guys, if you want to have some good stories in life, Go to these guys. Warren from New Zealand, I heard so much about the tours and after this experience, wish I'd done it earlier. There you go. So guys, Jeff, Jeff from Belgium. Really? Everybody in this group agrees that the tours you organised for us were the best. That's right, John. They're the best. Global Adventure Guide. Guys, get on it. Let's get back to Pete. Rightio, we've got a question from uh, good old Matthew Bins, who's one of our regular question providers from um, I Am Talk um, he said he'd like to know why Peter quit racing, he'd like to hear his view on the decision and now with hindsight whether it was too soon and would he consider racing again so what do you, what do you think about all that How old are you now Pete? Uh, 43 okay. Spring chicken Spring yeah, chicken, spring chicken. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure so, so, um, No actually I think I raced a little bit too long Oh really? Um, yeah, like I said, like had I taken a year off, I probably I just my last few years I I wasn't into it. Uh, it was a, it was a struggle to get the get out the door, and uh, I wanted to retire in Kona, and I was planning on doing it the year I retired in two thousand six. But my very first race of the year was uh, Saint Croix Half Ironman, and the gun went off, and I didn't move. <laughs> Everybody jumped in the water, and I remember thinking. All right, here we go. And I jumped in, and I just basically went through the motions, crossed the finish line. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. Wow. Yeah. And it wasn't that hard because, uh, I, you know, I struggled for a few weeks. You know, am I doing the right thing? You know, I, I always said I wanted to retire in Kona and give one last big hurrah. And I wrote this big, long email to Mark Allen, who, you know, we were pretty good friends at the time. And, and he wrote back one sentence. Like I think I wrote like three hundred word essay, <laughs> and one sentence. And he basically wrote, "Do you feel like you've accomplished everything you wanted in this sport?" And all I wanted to do was win Kona once, and I did it three times. And I was like, "I've done more than I ever, ever dreamed of doing in this sport." And that's when I knew I was like, "It's it's time. I, it's time to do something else." So you see that first couple of weeks, you know, you you sort of 
said, yep, no, the time is right. So maybe tell us about that that first year or two afterwards because I remember you got into into coaching at one stage, obviously doing mm-hmm. your flying now. So, you know, how was it hard to deal with retiring? Yeah, because you went from a place where, you, as you're saying, every thought and every day was triathlon. Yeah. You know, to, to have that, you know, taken from underneath your feet, is it's a, it's a pretty big change, isn't it? Well, I, I discovered aviation and all of a sudden, um, you know, Tim DeBoom always says, he's like, Knowing how you train for Ironman, I would fly with you. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it just basically my drive changed from triathlon and training to aviation. And, you know, here I was a lot older in life, learning a new career. And it it was a struggle being back in the classroom and learning everything. But I had the ultimate drive. And, you know, it just I transferred everything, all my drive, everything I learned in sport to my new profession and while doing that I still dabbled a little bit in the sport like I little did a little bit of work for Specialized and Power Bar and I was coaching a few guys and that's kind of what I was doing for those years while I was back in school and uh, eventually when I got my first job flying that is when you know I contacted Specialized and Power Bar and my athletes and I'm like Sorry, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I've got a job now, and I can't, I can't come away. And this is, you know, I was, I was, I had to start this new profession completely at the bottom. I ended up in this little logging town, flying loggers and fishermen through the camp. That's where I got my start, and there was no internet or anything. And you know, I, I remember my first year, where I was like. I'm like, you know, I used to fly first class. Now I'm cleaning the washroom to this freaking place. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and when you're going through that, did you did you still keep fit, you know, sort of normal person fit, or, or did you sort of just cut it? Uh, I cut it for the first couple of years yeah. and uh, gained quite a bit of weight, learned how to drink beer, like, properly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Good Canadian, good Canadian and, uh, you are. I guess about uh, I guess about three years ago, um, it really started bugging me, and um, I guess about last year and a bit, I've been really, really focusing on the bike, and uh, it's come along really, really good. I had some pretty good performances on some Grand Fondos last year, and I'm cranking it out even more. And even my training partners are starting to bitch that I'm a little bit too fit right now. <laughs> so it's it's coming back, and I'm back to like watching what I eat, and you know writing down a training journal and it's it slowly made its way back but it, it took it took a few years to, for it to make its way back yeah, you know we, we have to ask the questions around the marriage and and you know like i think you know obviously marriage marriage to laurie and yeah. uh at, at a peak time in your career and i suppose maybe the question that i'm interested in is looking back you know like it's 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 a pretty hard thing to try to be two top level yeah. athletes in a very selfish world trying to achieve big goals what would be the lessons that you would maybe talk to to people who are even just age group athletes or in a relationship who both are doing the sport? What would be some of the lessons you've taken from the marriage that maybe you could share? Well, I, I you know, first part of my years with, with Lori, you know, she was the ultimate balance in my life. You know, Lori was very, um, a really happy person and um, super never ever stressed about racing or training. So she was actually always great to have around she was the ultimate balance she's she's a bit of a genetic freak so it was always a little bit easier for her than for me but she would see my drive and it would help motivate her to do a little bit more and so it was like it was the perfect relationship a lot of my successes were due to her and I I feel the same thing 
that I did for her. Mm. Um, but eventually, um, I just started, we just started, I started doing more and more training camps with Tim and, and I was just ended up being more and more and more away from home. And then eventually you start coming home and you're like, uh, who are you? And it, that's kind of how it faded out is mm. just cause, uh, yeah, it just started and she was doing different races and, you know, in the beginning we always did the same races. Then we started doing different races or different periods of the year and, and it just kind of faded out. Mm. Well, what was it like to be such a public relationship with to break up? Uh, yeah, it's, it's only public in when we got to Kona. Every, oh, okay. In Victoria was never, it was not that big of a deal. Okay. And yeah, it was, it's, it was just big in Kona and in the triathlon circles and, here in Victoria, it's it's it wasn't that big of a deal. So um, you said you're, you're riding your bike a lot more these days. Um, you, have you teamed up with? Are you teaming up with Macca for a um, a team in Challenge Penticton? No, I was uh, I was going to, to work with Challenge Penticton. They they had me on board, and I went over there, and um, I was pretty excited about everything. And uh, what happened was uh, I started look, looking at the dates. And I was going to have to basically use all my vacation time to do all the functions that they wanted me to do. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. Um, like my, my vacation time now is for my family. I have a two-year-old and my wife. And, you know, like I, this, you know, rather than go do a, a, um, a challenge function, I went to Hawaii for two weeks with my bike and got to ride my bike, yeah. you know, and train that that was the biggest reason why I got out of challenge and and doing that was because you know rather than doing an you know a relay I could be doing a grand fondo and and, and doing the races that I I want to do and um, so that, that's kind of where it all faded out. And and how does does WTC um, keep in touch with you or give you any sort of special VIP treatment in terms of I've heard of other past champions who have been fairly scathing of the way that they've been treated by WTC you know if, if you were to go over to Kona do they or do they ever ask you over there to do any public appearances or anything like that well it's actually another classic you know Peter Reed story where you know I went to Kona a couple of years ago and uh, Heather Fear contacted me and she's like you know as a past champion you have VIP treatment if you want to pass or anything you need you know and I'm like you know what I'm going to be watching from the energy lab. I, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I don't want anything. I just want to be on the outside here and, and cheer on my friends that are out there racing. And she's like, no problem. Yeah. You know, and I just kind of steer clear of that kind of stuff. We've got a couple of random questions from some listeners. Stuart Moore was saying, we'd love to hear some stories of how you interact, interact with the triathlon community these days and how it differs from when you left the sport. Uh, my biggest... Um, I guess where I, I kind of see triathlons the most is so I I fly a plane that's single pilot so uh, whenever the someone can always sit up front with me in the cockpit mm. and so they have headsets and usually when I grab the paperwork like the manifest uh, a triathlete will recognize me they'll be like because it's kind of in the words kind of on the street that I'm flying for yeah. Harbor Air now it's kind of a it's kind of the bigger airline of we fly from downtown Victoria to downtown Vancouver. So it's a lot of business crowd. And so they'll always see me and jump up, you know, and then I'll talk to them. And then as I'm flying, I'm grilled on triathlon questions and training. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's how my, uh, that's how I, I'm linked to the triathlon world now 
And actually, I've converted a lot of fellow pilots who were big into drinking and smoking. They're all of a sudden buying road bikes, and mm, they're honestly, yeah. And there's there's definitely a huge change. And even the management is, you know, has said since you've come on board, we're seeing a huge change in our crew here well, because everybody's back into fitness, and yeah, so it's pretty neat. Um, and a couple of people asked about the the movie um, What It Takes. Now that was quite a few years ago now, but. Um, yeah, talk us through that, and 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 I remember it. It portrayed you a, a bit neurotic and 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 what have you. I mean, were you happy with how that came out, and and did you think it was a, a fair reflection of of the way that you trained and raced? I think it was. I think it was. It was very fair. That's. Um, it was. Uh, it, it definitely nailed it. Um, I wish it actually had shown more on my training, rather than you know interviews and. Um, I the whole reason why I wanted to do it was to show my day in and day out routine, you know, and, and kind of get into the description of the actual training that revolves. I, I felt the movie never got that across of you know like the sets of the swimming in the pool, the hours in the pool, and um, the 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 exact work that I was doing and why I was doing a certain workout on this day and why it was a workout on this day. Mm. That was the biggest reason why I wanted to do it was to to basically show, you know, people like me that got into the sport of how, how do I succeed? You know, what what are what are the top people doing? Like what 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 are the actual workouts that you're doing? And mm. and that that's what I really wanted the movie to to be about. And that's not kind of what uh, became of it. And the reason why they did it that way is because they were trying to go mainstream. Yeah. yeah. In the event it didn't go mainstream, it, it went to just the triathlon community that watched the movie. And so I think the triathlon community would have loved it a lot more had it got more into the, the day-in and day-out routine of the four athletes. Mm. We've got a question here from Dave McKay just asking, uh, I'd like to know how fast you think you would have run an open marathon on when you're at your peak. I don't think it would have been much faster. I am not a fast runner. I'm just, I'm just a. I, um, even even to this day, I, I a, a fellow buddy of mine is a chiropractor. And he's just like, you got such a slow cadence. It's crazy. Even t- he's like, there's that Peter Reed form. Click, 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 and. You know, and I do, like I said, try Simon Whitfield's a good buddy of mine, and you know, and he just, you know, I'm running beside him, and I'm taking one stride for every six of his. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was, I was, you know, I, I was a cyclist who be, who learned how to run, and it's not my natural sport, so it, I wouldn't have run much faster. Pete, often, often in life, you know, you look back on on your past times and, and the wisdom of today. You look back and go, if I had the wisdom of today, I. I could have been better or, or, or got better, you know, look back on your past and think you maybe could have done better. Do you do you have that with, you know, when you look back on, you know, the lessons you've learned in life post-triathlon, would have they made you a better triathlete or how would have the experience been different? The biggest thing is I wish my parents would have enrolled me in swimming lessons. <laughs> <True. lessons. laughs> I would have made a lot more money a lot quicker. <laughs> Yeah, I think swimming lessons is the key one. Yeah, it yeah. is. Um, we don't need to talk about the Phuket thing. A few people asked about the Phuket. John thing, beat but... you once. I think we talked about this last time we had you on. <laughs> yeah, and John, John brings it up every week. Peter, seriously, I'm sick of it. <laughs> it's it's my motivator. It's my motivator. Nice. nice. <laughs> is there any any questions that um, you you haven't really been asked before that you've thought I wish somebody had asked me that bloody question? I've always wanted to tell people about 
something you know, rather. Is there anything like that that um, you you sit through interviews and you go, I want to get that across? Oh, I don't know. That's I don't know. Big, that's a big question. Mm. Um, yeah, I think one of the things is you know, what do you do race morning like in Kona? Like, what's your what's your routine? And a lot of people didn't know this that uh, uh, if I didn't have a proper warm up, I tended to hyperventilate in my swims. Oh, really? And uh, so what my whole routine was, you know, I'd get up, you know, I always made sure I ate three hours before the race. So I'd have to get up super early and I'd go to the race start and then I'd go for a run for 15, 20 minutes. And it was just a super slow jog to slowly just start getting my breathing going. And then after that, I come in, I do a lot of stretch cords and totally a lot of arm circles and stretches and trying to get my shoulders as loose as possible then I would get into the water and then do a few hypoxic sets where I'd breathe like every six, every eight, every 10, just to really open up my lungs, then a mm-hmm. few sprints and then get ready and then go to the line. So, you know, my Ironman had already, you know, when I was racing eight, eight plus hours, I'd already had like 40 to 50, 50 minutes of warm up before the start even happened. Well, a lot of people just, you know, walk on down to this, you know, get into the water, a few sprints. Okay, I'm ready to go. And my my routine was so much longer than that. PP, you know, I suppose the last question I have for you is, um, what did you love about triathlon? Uh, I love the the biggest thing that I love was the the you have an off season, and. You know, you, I, I would always take I always took three weeks completely off, no sports whatsoever, and uh, and watching how from that day one where I decided, okay, here's the start of my training phase for you know the following year, and you know you're going up hills and you're in the small chain ring and you're kind of laboring a little bit, and then watching as the months go off and all of a sudden you know you're like two weeks out from Kona. And you're going up in the big ring, breathing through your nose. And it was just the evolution of watching the transformation of the human body as it was getting fitter and fitter and fitter. And I love that process of how the dedication of day in and day out created to a completely different, you know, human being. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it was just I love that process. Yeah, very good. Look, I, don't, I mean, um, I don't think anybody can question that you're a legend. You know, three wins in Kona, seven times well, on the podium. Well, and you hardly even not podiumed in any race, did you? Mm, or like, top, top five. Yeah, yeah four, you're, you're ridiculously good. Bloody, yeah, bloody I, either, I either did really well or I DNF'd. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, thanks. Oh, have you got anything on the agenda for this for this year? Um, you, know, you talked about a few grand, grand frondos. Uh, anything sort of happening this year? Yeah, same thing. Our, the biggest one I'm getting ready for is the uh, we've got this big Grand Fondo from uh, Vancouver to Whistler, the big ski oh, resort. Yeah. There's like 8,000 people that did it. Do it. And last year I was 18th, and this year I'm aiming, aiming for top five. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's, that's, Sorry, that's, I, I always have my obligatory one more question. That's day one of our camp over in Canada next oh, year. There you go. There you Vancouver go. Vancouver to Whistler. Um, okay. Pete, are you loving being a dad? Love it. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's it's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, all of a sudden, I probably should have been a dad earlier too. I think that would have probably helped with my triathlon towards the end too because all of a sudden you're like, it's no longer about you. You know, mm-hmm. your day revolves around this little being and it totally gets you out of like, what am I doing? And I, I yeah, probably being a dad would have probably helped my triathlon career a little bit longer. Oh, there you go. 
Nice. Peter, thank you so mate, much religion, for mate. Thanks sharing, for your time. sharing your time. And uh, we know the lo- listeners love to listen. So thanks for your time and uh, all the best for your uh, grand fondos coming up. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. I love the part when he talks about how just once his dad kind of accepted him, motivation died. <laughs> but, you know, like it is, it's really fascinating that whole thing of what motivates us, mm. you know, and how that's so different for different people. And for some people it's aspirational, some people it's, you know, trying to prove themselves, some people it's disappointment will motivate them, you know, but it's, yeah, it was just it was such a revealing interview, wasn't it? It was fantastic. I, I assume we brought up the Phuket story with him. We no, must have done. No way, John. I'm, I'm <laughs> no pretty way. sure he could. No, never. 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 Oh, it's the first time I've ever heard about it. Do you want to tell me about it, John? <laughs> no. Okay, let's talk about our last sponsor. Trisports.com, guys. If you're in the market for buying any triathlon gear, go on there, use the promo code IMTALK and you get a 10% discount off anything in store. Also, we get a little uh, affiliate fee from that, so you're basically getting a good deal for yourself, also helping us out. So trysports.com and use the promo code IMTALK. And actually, we got an email through from a listener. Who was this? I think it was... Uh, talk about them for a second. We've got patrons as well. A few patrons um, support us, and you guys are going to be in the chance to go to Kona next year, 2018. And... Remember, you know, Bevan is talking up 2018 as a massive year. It could be the year where we see Fredino versus Gomez versus Brownlee. That would be... It'll be awesome if they're there. That would be awesome. Irrespective of that, we're going to be there and one of our patrons is going to win a slot to come and join us. Fiona Harding, John. Fiona Harding was asking us, question we're going to use a discussion a week at some stage, but um, she was just saying, I've been on Try Sports this morning and use your code for the order. Awesome. So thank you, Fiona, and that's what you do, guys. Just when you go through the process, you use our code, and we, we get a little bit of a cut. It just helps us do what we do. Hmm. So if you want to be a patron, you go www.imtalk.me, and as John was saying, you're going to draw to win a free – win a trip to Wakona and hang out with the boys and watch a year which could potentially be the greatest Ironman year of all time. Who knows? Yeah. We'll yet to see, but pretty exciting stuff. But these people already are patrons. Ben Mystery Walton. We've got Bradley Speedo Oldham. Paul the Hack Calder. And the next one, I forgot to write it down, so we're going to have to come up with another one, but I'm pretty sure the angle we would have gone here. Killicoat. Philip Killicoat. Kill- We've got to go jacket or something like that. Okay. Uh, the black jacket. The black jacket. Yeah. Right, I'll write it black down jacket's cool, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like the black leather jacket. Have you ever had a black leather jacket, John? No, I kind of had a brownie, suede type one. Uh-huh. I thought I used to think that was pretty cool. Yeah. I've never had a leather jacket. It was always too cheap. Because mm-hmm. they're not cheap, are they? They're not cheap. Well, that one probably was because I am cheap. <laughs> <laughs> chances are me spending that much on a leather jacket is slim to none. It ain't happening. Okay, so... Uh, Bevan, what have you been doing this week? So we're thinking this is May the 30th, uh, a week from now. Okay. Frantically getting ready for I went up to Auckland for the weekend. Mm-hmm. It's a work in Auckland. Um, yes, I, I've got a list of things to get done before I jump on the flight next Monday, next Tuesday. With your Monday meeting. Yes, I've got a list of things that, that are just ticking through. Because what I don't want to do, like when you own your own business, you're always going to do a little bit of work on holiday. Mm. But I want to keep that to half an hour a day max. Yep. So I don't want to be going overseas and doing lots and lots of work. So I'm just, I am a, not a busy, what's the one? A, a deliverer of my objectives, John. Good. There you go. That's what I've been doing. What about you? Camp's going well. Camp is going well. Day one, we uh, headed out and swam across Captain Cook's and back, which is a beautiful swim. This time, I, I will have remembered to put sunscreen on my back. Is it the one you go right? No, no. We we bike over um, away from from Kona and you drop down to this little bay. Is it where we went 
and when I was there. Is it Captain Cook? Uh, Mountain Sail with, with his flippers on. Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah, we had people getting got a little bit lost last yeah, time. Yeah. So this time uh, we've got a couple of kayakers out there. So oh, really? <laughs> Simon Early can't go swimming off uh, to some other random peninsula. It's quite a tricky entry point where we get in. And there's this little beach there and you've got to swim out between this tiny gap in the rocks. And it's quite rough. And you've got to sort of time it and just barrel it straight out through the rocks. It's uh, safe as houses. And then, <laughs> sure, once, sure it is. and then once you're out there, then you uh, you swim across this big bay. But the classic mistake that I've made once before and a number of other people make is not putting enough sunscreen on. You're out there, you know, for an hour plus swimming and the sun is just beating down on your back. So this time I'm going to be well sunscreened up and then we're going to bike back and then we will have done on uh, done the Ironman course and as I said earlier on I think today we will have uh, done the Energy Lab run as well as doing, uh, you know, swimming the Ironman course. So it's been a good couple of days. How did you do the Ironman course? Well, in the past we have actually swum out 1.9 Ks yeah. uh, and but you just feel like you're seriously in the middle of nowhere so this time there is a uh, a marker out there that's about one point I think it's a 1.5 K marker or it's a one mile marker yeah we will swim out to that and back twice just so we don't have to go quite so far out into the ocean yeah okay good times um okay guys that's pretty much us for this week's show we'll be back in kind of a normal show next week and then you'll hear us from today in two weeks from now. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I'm Russ. I'm Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha.